Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 831. Kay Levine, what's on the Nerdist Community Corkboard? Well, first of all, Anderson Cowan, who uh, is from the Late Love Line and the Film Plot Podcast, has an idea for his first feature film, but he needs your help. The film would be called Groupers, and it's a dark comedy that is sort of in the same realm of human centipede. The logline is a female grad student captures two homophobic males to be part of a controversial experiment at the bottom of an empty pool. And Anderson calls it an after-school special, but for adults. Uh, to watch the video about the project, to find out more info, or to donate to the crowdfunding campaign, you can go to groupersthemovie.com. And also, right now is a super exciting time for sports fans because uh, baseball is in the playoffs. It's the here. middle of the NFL season. Basketball is in preseason, and hockey is starting this week. Is it over yet? Nope. We have two sports podcasts that people should listen to if they like sports. One is Puck Soup. It's a hockey podcast hosted by Greg Wyshynski and Dave Lozo and features all the latest hockey news and games as well as interviews with broadcasters, writers, and more. And the Jonah Carey podcast talks about all sports and features interviews with athletes, commentators, comedians who are sports fans, and more. Puck Soup comes out every Thursday, and Jonah Carey podcast is every Monday and Friday. You can find them on Nerdist.com and iTunes, and subscribe. Listen, they're great. You tricked me because that is related to a Nerdist thing, and yep. I like... Well, oh, we have so sports guys. now, Chris. That's not fair, Get Katie. fucking used to That's it. Not- <laughs> Ooh, Katie, you're hurting me. <laughs> Let go of my arm. Uh, this episode is Norm MacDonald, which this is, our, this is a record Nerdist podcast. This I don't is. think we've ever had – I think this is the longest Nerdist podcast we did, and it's not – but it didn't feel like that when we were doing it because Norm is a, an exceptional storyteller. He and is. He, had, he has all the stories. He had so <laughs> many great things to say, and he was uh, – and I just – I want I, the only reason that I that I even had to stop. It would have gone longer, but the only reason that I had to stop is because Lydia and I had tickets to see Neil Finn at Largo, and so I, I had oh. to get to the Neil Finn show because uh, he had been on the podcast, yes. and that's coming up in a bit uh, in a couple couple weeks. But um, yeah, so I mean, Norm is an endlessly fascinating, and really, you know, I didn't even really know Norm that well. We've met a few times, and he remembered that. He was so nice to me. He was very nice. He was so sweet. So uh, hilarious. Norm is promoting his memoir based on a true story, now available wherever books are sold. Uh, pick it up because it's Norm. It's it's Norm on Norm. It's going to have so many stories. Sweet Norm on Norm <laughs> action, and uh, and thank you for uh, thank you for being generous with your time, Norm. So here you go. Listen to it all at once. Break it up over a couple sessions if you need to. Which is Norm McDonald, episode number eight thirty one. Katie, roll up your sleeves and roll the thing. Now entering Nerdist.com. 
Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank Incredible. you. Incredible. Thank you very much. American success story. Thank, <laughs> thank, thank. <laughs> I mean, I'm still, I think everybody's still puzzled at exactly how podcasts work, but. Uh, I, I think uh, most people are catching on that it's basically. I mean, St- Howard Stern is really the, the godfather of, with that, even though uh, it wasn't a podcast. Yeah, yeah. But just that sort of like, I'm just going to talk to people. Right. But no, I'm just talking about the the. There's, you don't have Coca-Cola, man. We can find one for uh, sure. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's super hot out. Don't go too far. Deb, our the studio just it might be the we might have them in the studio kitchen. Hey, I noticed the thing about the debate yesterday. What? There was a debate last night. Did you notice the split screen? Yes. So here's two people talking to each other on the same stage, and they have a split screen for the entire show. Yeah. And I was like, why did they do that? And then I figured it out. Why? Height. <laughs> oh, to keep them. Oh, interesting. But I also think. Ever the same size. Interesting. I think people wanted to see every reaction. You of know, Trump. it's such a, such a microscopic. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I don't know if they told Trump. Because he, <laughs> I, I think he often felt he was off camera. You know what I mean? There's a, but there's it's still a police squad moment. He'd be just picking his yeah, nose and yeah. scratching his balls. <laughs> but it's funny. Like. Just with charisma, like your face never left Trump, even when Hillary was talking, you know. You're yeah. just looking at the reaction. But I, I didn't think the uh, – I was actually smiles. somewhat disappointed in the moderation of, of it because there was really no structure. There was supposed no. to be a structure. And they would go, okay, that's time. Wait, I'm going to talk for a few more minutes. All right. Yeah. Well, no, the time means time. Like, that's it. You should have gotten your thing <laughs> right. in before. Like, that's how that worked. I thought 90 well, minutes was short, too. Thank you so much, Joe. I thought 90 minutes was kind of short. I love that moment. There was only one exciting moment to me, which was at the end, when he almost like a, ch- a child, he said, like, she's not being very nice. You know, like, <laughs> so weird, weird to hear someone say, nice. Nice. And uh, she's not being very nice. And uh, I'm going to say something. You know what? I'm, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. But it is kind of funny to try to t- take credit for something that you didn't say. You know, I was going to say this really hard. I was going to because you're still kind of insulting. What, what, what are you uh, referring to? I was talking about what he said, like where he said, oh, "I was going to say something. Oh, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. I was going to say something not very nice, but then I decided not to say I something do. not very That's nice." True, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, great. So you're, okay, so you're, just, you're, you're a basic human. Interaction. You're a nice person. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like but you still let us it. know that you're. I mean, I'm thinking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking this really horrible thing. All right. Well, I don't, it's just I'm almost as bad. Really, it's almost just as bad. Do you think letters? Talk going back to the late night talk show before. We're not on the air. Now we are. Yeah. Oh, we're on the air. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hello. By the way. Hello, Norm. Thank you for just sitting down right We now. can go as long as you want. Because we have to marry an after, but I could give it. Wait a second. <laughs> hey, what the? I'm hey, just saying on. we can go as long as you want. Because <laughs> I enjoy this show. <laughs> Thank you. I enjoy uh, all, all things. But oh, that's I like good. This show. Do you think Letterman's happy <laughs> since he left? Do you think a guy yes. like that can have a pattern like that? You think so? I, I, I've, you know, I've had some contact with him. And I'm shocked because I thought he would not be, but he seems to be incredibly happy, and uh, he seems to be also shocked that he's happy. Like, you know, <laughs> he thought that he would have nothing. You know? Yeah, which um, <clears throat> most people do. You know, like my father was, uh, uh, you know, he had a job and he always thought of retiring. You know, that was his his whole goal, his whole life. And then when he retired, he forgot to think of something to do. Like he didn't have hobbies or anything like that. So then it would just be like my mother worked also and was was much younger. So my dad would just look out the window when she left and, you know, clean up around and make He just didn't know what to do. No idea. He'd walk the neighborhood and talk to people. 
Yeah, like in the neighborhood, you know. I mean, I feel like you need something to do, something to occupy yourself uh-huh. with, because you can't if you just sit. No, you can't do nothing. Yeah. Um, I follow this guy, Kipadada. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know who Kip is. You know who he is? Yeah. Right? Well, you got to follow him on Twitter, because it's the most amazing follow ever. And, and he only has like 140 followers or something. So I have a whole bunch. Well, not like you, but, you know, I have a, a near a million. So I, uh, t- you know, I tweet him. Thinking he'll tweet me back. <laughs> Another comic. I have a whole way, a whole bunch. And uh, no, never returned. And I, I go like Kipadata was one of my favorite comics ever on the Tonight Show. Boom. No response, you know. So I'm like, no, he doesn't even refollow me. I'm like, no, oh, what's going on? But he does these videos and he puts them on Twitter and they're so funny. It's, He's just like an old man complaining. And then his neighbor is this old, because uh, you know Kip must be 70 by now or something. His neighbor is an old African-American fella about the same age. And so they're playing checkers. <laughs> like who's playing checkers? Because it's the 30s. 50 years, exactly. <laughs> and they're playing checkers. And then you know, Kip Adad will say like, um, you know, um, I, I did 150 Tonight Shows. He goes, motherfucker, you did shit. <laughs> the guy doesn't believe it. And why would he, you know? It's just like he's just a fat guy in a, in a bad house. The shit, man. Why don't you tell me some more stories, kid? He's like, I don't care if you believe me. I did it. I know that. Yeah. And I walked on the moon, motherfucker. What was your story? Because the, the, your book is out. <laughs> Yes, I wrote a book. Based on a true story. A memoir. memoir. A memoir. A memoir. And it it's essentially just it is it is a biographical account of the strangeness of your life. Yes. So what was the story about uh, the Tonight Show for you about ruining oh. a chance to get on the Tonight Show? Because um, yes. you must have done the Tonight Show a bunch. I mean, I feel like I remember seeing you on the Tonight Show. Uh, well, there was the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and then there was afterward, you know, <laughs> right? But um, I was living in Canada. And I was kind of at my peak. Um, I'd been doing. I, I got good at stand up pretty quick. So I was about two years in, and I was really good, you know. And I said, I'll go. Uh, uh, Carson had announced he was going to retire in eight months. So I said, I'm going to go to Los Angeles, move to Los Angeles, and be the last comedian on The Tonight Show and have him anoint me and call me over to the couch, and it'll be a big deal, you know. And uh, so there was this uh, um, talent booker uh, for The Tonight Show who had a lot of power. And, uh, yeah, you know, he, he was the guy you had to get through as a gatekeeper. <clears throat> so anyways, uh, but he was you know, f- very frustrating to him. So I would do a set, you know, and he would come. Well, first time I did the set, and he come, came up to me after. He goes, I didn't like you, but I was really drunk. <laughs> oh, Jesus so I'm Christ. like, jeez, man. <laughs> so I'm all right. Well, can I do it again? He's like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I didn't care for him, but... You're probably funny. Everybody says you're funny. But I tell you, I was really hammered. I'm like, all right. So then the next time, I'm sitting there, and I look over. He's necking with a girl. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like, what the fuck is this guy? So finally, he's, you know, he looks at the stage and sees me after you know seven tries, you know? And uh, so then he goes, um, you're great, but you're not a Johnny comic. You're a Jay kind. People say these ridiculous right. things that, that have no meaning. So I'm like, uh, what? He's like, you're a, you're more of a Jay because Jay was doing Monday night 
uh, as the guest host mm-hmm. at that time, and it had already been revealed that he was going to take over. So uh, he goes, you're a, you're a Jay comic. And I go, no, I think I'm a Johnny comic. Like <laughs> That's what all my friends tell me. They always say, hey, you're a kind of a Johnny comic. He's like, I think you're a Jay comic. I'm like, um, so I'm in my head. I'm like, there's no fucking, it doesn't mean anything. What are you talking about? I'm so angry. And then he says, like, whispers it to me. He goes, and also, Jay is going to take over the show. And that, that, I go, I go, that was in the paper. Like, <laughs> why are you whispering it? Everyone knows this, this thing. You're telling me in confidence, you know? So anyways, he, he says, you know, Johnny will watch the, the, you know, the Monday night with Jay. And, every, and everybody already knew at that point that Johnny hated Jay also. And even even if he didn't, like Johnny Carson's going to watch the guest host right. on his day off, you <laughs> right, know, right, at eleven thirty. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I never got to do the the Tonight Show. But then looking back, like I wasn't really a Carson guy. I just when I he was like a, a corny old guy to me. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, so I took it on faith. That he was funny, you know, and I'd see clips and he'd be funny. But I wasn't a guy who grew up with Johnny Carson. I was a guy who grew up with David Letterman. Right. So it probably was uh, better for me um, to to have my first spot on, on Dave, you know. You got sorted into the right house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, without with knowing it, you know. It turned out I was a Dave comic. <laughs> <laughs> you were neither a Leonard comic nor a, <laughs> yeah. nor a, uh, nor a I Johnny met, comic. I met Johnny Carson after that. And uh, it was, uh, and I told him the story, you know, and he didn't, he just said, uh, he just said, he, you know, we just, whatever he said <laughs> about the talent booker. <laughs> but he phoned me. He had an office after he retired, and he would go to the office every day, Johnny Carson. And I don't know what he did. You know what I mean? He had a secretary, and wouldn't he and write joke? Uh, wouldn't he like send jokes into yes, Letterman sometimes? He would, he would because when he died, Letterman did all his jokes. Yeah, and I remember watching and going, "Oh, these jokes suck! Like, what is this? Um, <laughs> what is this monologue?" And then he he said, "Oh, Johnny wrote all those jokes." And I'm like, "Well, that explains." It. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, if Johnny sent uh, Dave jokes, he'd be compelled to read them. You right. know what I mean? He is, it was his uh, hero of uh, all time. So, uh, <laughs> but anyways, uh, I was on Saturday Night Live, and I did an impression of Larry King because he did those Kings things mm-hmm. in USA Today. And for those people who don't know what that is, it was little bullet points where Larry would say his opinions. They right. weren't funny. And it was kind of an old journalistic device that predated Larry King. Um, just stream of consciousness things, you know. And, you know, we would parody them. He does them now on Twitter. We, he, we, so we would parody them. But they were already really self-parodical, you know. Right. So it was hard to, we had to go real crazy, you know, like... Like I go, you know, yellow is a good color, but blue is the best, or some, you know. <laughs> or so, uh, Johnny in, invites me. I don't know why he invited me to his office, you know. So I get there, and it turned out that Johnny got USA Today every day, and he would um, he would phone his friends and read uh, Larry King's um, stupid ramblings. And got a you know got a big kick out of him, and his friend, and his friends would laugh. So in his in his he opens his desk drawer, and there's all these like um, 
uh, you know, his secretary had cut them out of the paper, you know, about a, a three-inch thick uh, packet <laughs> of uh, Larry King's news and views or King's things or whatever it was called. So he gives me a bunch, and then he takes a bunch. He goes, you know, let's. Uh, I don't can't do Carson. He goes, you know, let's uh, let's let's read some, you know. So <laughs> so. <laughs> I go. Wait, did, ironically, or did he genuinely think they were insightful? Oh, no, 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 no. He thought they were. He thought they really were. Ridiculous. Okay, good, 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 yeah. good. Okay. He thought they were really stupid, but uh, and he thought it was insane that they were taking up, uh, you know, newspaper <laughs> space, and uh, so then, uh, you know, he, I, I w- he would read one, and then I would read one. You know, it's really speaking of surreal. Like you know, you're sitting across the table, like about as far as I am from you, except it's Johnny Carson. So he'd go like, uh, he'd go like, um, you know, why is it, uh, you know, I would enjoy baseball if it was 11 innings. You know, and then we'd laugh about that. And then I would read it and I'd go, you know, whatever it was, like, if you have to see one movie this year, make it Mickey Blue Eyes, you know. <laughs> and then, uh, like about a, like a few ways through, I realized he'd never asked me to do an impression. <laughs> So I was like, maybe am I being a fool? Like he never said, like do Larry King. So, uh, but uh, but I, I guess he liked it. So we laughed at that. And we did that. And then he goes, we'll have to get together again, presumably to do the exact same thing. I mean, <laughs> so that's what you do when you retire. I mean, I guess you know, I guess he played a lot of tennis and he did. Yeah, you know, he yachted. He was on he a yachted. Yacht. Yeah, but I but I, I imagine that it, and I'm sure you know for Jay too, it's probably really weird. To, to have that pattern of going to work every day and having this very structured lifestyle uh-huh. and then all of a sudden like take it away what do I do what do I do now have you ever heard my impression of um, Johnny Carson phoning 911 when he had his massive heart attack uh, no I have not oh well, you want to do it please take us there but you have to be the 911 operator sure okay 911 operator sure 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 so, okay the phone rings ring ring uh, hello 911 uh, hello this is <clears throat> this is Johnny Carson Oh, uh, Mr. Carson, yes. How can I help you? I, uh, I, I feel like there's a yak on my chest. Could you describe the yak? <laughs> you, can't, you can't go further. You're like my mother. I finished the joke, and she's like, what happened to the dog? I'm like, I, thought we were, <laughs> I thought we were going. Oh, no. Because I, 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 in, that, in that scenario, that person would try to be respectful of Johnny I Carson. And you didn't you know describe it, the yak, even though they know there's not a yak. <laughs> even though they know there's not I a yak. I should have gone with it. Yes, and. God, Norm, I was so in the scene, man. All right? Isn't that improv? Yes, and. Well, I don't and. get acting jobs. You know? <laughs> no one ever lets me really explore the depths of my I was talking to Diana earlier about, I've only been on like four auditions in my life you know I'm so awful in them but the first one I ever was <laughs> I came you know I, I had very strong stand up so I would kill in the club you know so there was a, a guy a casting agent and he's like after my set he's like I love you and they had the show on, on Fox called Flying Blind it was Tia Leone mm-hmm. and uh and then this guy that talked and looked exactly like Woody Allen, you know. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that he was like, you know, nebbishy and she was super uh, hot. So anyways, it was, it was a big show that they were just starting on Fox. So they had a regular role they wanted to do. And uh, so he's like, you're perfect. You know, this is perfect. Ah, this is great. You know, they're going to love you. And I think he was thinking they're going to love me. for. And he, oh, he kept saying that. He goes, I discovered you. He goes, don't forget that. I'm like, no, no, I don't want to forget. And I'm all excited. So he gives me the script, and it's a huge amount of lines I have, you know. 
And so I'm reading at home. I don't know how to act. I just look in the mirror and make faces. And then, you know, I like underline a, a one word to say louder than the other words. And, you know, like all the actors. Exactly. <laughs> so I go there the next day uh, to meet the producer. I was supposed to read in front of the producer. I get in, there's 30 people. I'm like, whoa, whoa. And introducing everybody, one guy's the head of the network. I'm like, what in hell? And so it was sort of like the uh, the the nascent period of Fox, not the beginning, but so shows were important at that time. So <laughs> all these people. So I start reading, and I'm getting no nothing, zero response, you know. And uh, you know that the thirty people are like looking at each other, puzzled. And finally, the the uh, casting director goes, stop, stop, stop everybody. He's like, can, can we have a moment? Norm and I, can we have a moment in the hall? And they're like, yeah, sure, have a moment. So he goes, Norm. So we get out in the hall. He goes, what the fuck were you doing? You know. <laughs> so I go, what? I was just reading the script. The script, you know. He goes, but what about last night? I go, what? He goes, last night, like at the the comedy club. So I go, you? Oh, you want me to do my material from last night? He goes, no, you idiot. He goes, he goes, I want you to be funny like last night. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I'm like, no, but I had like this good material I've been working on, you know, for two years. <laughs> and this is some stuff some guy wrote in a week. And I can't make it funny. I'm not a guy that can make stuff funny. And uh, then he goes, he goes, uh, you're not coming back in that room. I'll tell you that. And then he just laughs and I'm alone. I don't drive. I don't know how to go home. And then my manager goes, that guy's real powerful, you know. He goes, he could make it so you never work in this town again, like they used to say in the 30s. Right, right. And I was like, ah, even I knew. I was like, I don't think you could do that. <laughs> but anyways. Was... You should still thank him for discovery. You should have dedicated your... Oh, that would be a good idea. <laughs> he did discover, man. <laughs> well, the network testing process is a brutal, horrific process. Oh, gosh, yeah. Isn't which it? Uh, emotionally feels very much like uh, the Russian literature that you so enjoy. It's <laughs> a tale of isolation in an icy, <laughs> in an oh. icy tundra. <laughs> well, you know, when you go into those big um, uh, stadiums or whatever they are, you know, uh, and, the, and the, the people that decide are way up. Oh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. The auditoriums, mm-hmm. and oh, I feel so bad. I always felt bad because I would have television shows where I, anybody that came in, I just laugh insanely. You just know? to make them comfortable. Yes, of course. You know, and these other motherfuckers just dead silent, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, it must have been some power thing or something. I'm like, God. I man, think it was a power easy. thing, and I think it was also a, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of these people are just terrified. You know, because their livelihoods depend on whether or not they have another hit show. Uh, but I think a lot of people are too terrified to express an opinion in front of their bosses because yeah. then they're not going to be accountable for it. It's like, okay, well, as long as I have the same experience that my boss is having, I can't ever get blamed. True. And so I think they're all just yeah. terrified. They're yeah. just terrified. So if they laugh and the boss doesn't think it's funny, it's like, oh, well, why'd you think that was funny? <laughs> I don't know. Please don't fire me. Yeah. So I think I think it's yeah. probably a lot to do with it. Terrible, terrible experience for a performer oh, trying to. So it's made so uncomfortable. And then ultimately, it doesn't matter because they're like, "Oh, we gave it to this other guy because he was the same height as this other person." That's what it usually ends up being. Yeah, you're yeah. exactly right. But uh, you know the um, uh, the the just the the terror they make you go through for no reason. Um, I, I don't know. I know, like uh, for notes, there are people that that's what they do for a living. They give notes, you know, for mm-hmm. people at home, you know, they give notes for the studio people. 
give notes. The network people give notes. They're required that's, to. They're required That's why to. a lot of them don't make sense. That's their job. job. And when you think about it, What's a note? It's always going to be negative. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you just go, I liked everything. You right. Know, that's, then you're an idiot, apparently, even though why wouldn't that be the case sometimes? So when Seinfeld came around, Seinfeld came under the aegis of Rick Ludwin in late night mm-hmm. because they had, um, they had him signed to a holding deal in case he replaced Johnny Carson. So, uh, Seinfeld's sort of a guy that thinks he should earn his money, you know, and has that Protestant work ethic, and he's like, well, I'm being paid a million dollars, I'll make a show, you know? And uh, everybody, you know, in the world, I remember, had always thought, what about a show about being a comic? You know right. what I mean? That was what everybody wanted to do. <laughs> and then when you thought about it, you're like, no, that's not a good idea at all. So uh, he did that with Larry David as a summer show in the summer so called The Seinfeld Chronicles. And uh, it didn't do well. And uh, and then when and it became a hit, and then um, uh, Larry David... And both of them, but especially Larry David, is very hard-headed and was willing to walk, you know. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld was willing to walk because he was making so much money as a stand-up comedian. Right. He was probably the biggest biggest comedian at the time. So they wouldn't take notes, especially when the show became a hit. So, you know, I'd hear stories from the writers about how, you know, they after the dress or whatever... They'd be in Larry's office, and Larry would be putting, you know, a little putting thing. And Jerry would be sitting on the couch, and then the guy would give a note, like, you know, I think, what about, I was thinking if Elaine, uh, you know, didn't uh, uh, didn't act uh, so surprised at that moment uh, in the third act, and then Larry would go, I don't know, I, I kind of liked it. What about you, Jerry? He'd go, I, I liked it. And the guy would go, oh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, and then I had a show at the same time, and I was like, um, I, I pitched them on, and uh, I go, well, they do that on Larry's show, I mean, on, um, on Seinfeld. And they go, well, that's Seinfeld, like right. some different thing, you know. And I thought, well, now after after Seinfeld was such a success, well, now they'll go to that paradigm. Right. You know, a, a great comedian, and then a guy he chooses, and then two guys write the show. Which was also the interesting thing about Seinfeld is they had a room full of writers, none of which wrote the show. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the idea was you would go to Jerry or Larry and tell them a story from your life. That was right, funny. but it had to be a real story. A real story. Yeah, which I was a brilliant idea, and then they would write it. You know, and uh, I remember Spike Ferristein telling me uh, that he wrote the Soup Nazi episode. Mm-hmm. And the entire story he told them was that there was a guy in New York that was a soup Nazi, and you know that was it. You know they, that he, was, <laughs> he was a real mean guy, and so um, he told me like years later, he goes, "Does it ever bother you? Like I won an Emmy for that uh, soup Nazi episode, even though you wrote the entire thing." And he said, uh, "Larry said, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, he, he hadn't forgotten." <laughs> <laughs> Did you like but, doing your show? Yeah, Did you like a, doing a network sitcom? No, I didn't. No. Because of that reason? I would have loved to, to do it with that idea. You know, and in the old days, that's what they did. You look at the credits, there's two guys, two people. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't like this collaboration. You know, the rooms kept getting bigger and bigger. So you'd have 18 people in a room, 
uh, trying to do comedy. Trying to tell you how to be funny the way well, you were funny. That's the other yeah. thing, too, yeah. And how to be likable. Right. And I was always like, well, if you're funny, you're likable. <laughs> some people, <laughs> people if are laughing, laughing. They don't you, hate you. Yeah, they will like you. Uh, but instead, it would be this, uh, you know, kind of hateable because uh, you're trying to be likable so much. Right. And people go, oh, this guy's really trying hard. They can to feel, be when, yeah, comedy is rough when people can feel the need, when they can feel the desperation. The neediness. It's yeah. all, like, yeah, it's, yeah. All, it's all over because they need a comedy, they need a comedian to lead them. They need, the comedian kind of needs to be a leader. Oh, yes, yes. And, uh, Anyways, the the size of the room, even like from a sociological standpoint, I don't think eighteen people can work as one. They'll drift. They'll make click clicks. Right. You know, there'll be three people, three groups of six that all, uh, you know, uh, talk about the others as if they're no good. But also, there's no eighteen good funny people. You can never find that, you know. <laughs> and then what you end up doing is you're like, oh, well, it seems like Melissa hasn't had a joke in for a while. Like, and it's like, really, we have to put it in because she hasn't had a joke in for three weeks. I have to put in a bad joke. <laughs> and I never had like an ego about jokes. Like I, I would go like, whatever the best joke is, that's what we do. Yeah, right. I don't care who wrote it. Like if if the um, if the writer's assistant wrote it, which I'd always tell the writer's assistants to pitch, uh, whoever, you know, um, if I wrote it and if I wrote a joke and then you write a better joke, I'm not going to fight for my joke. It's absurd, you know. I want just the best jokes. And I don't even remember any, you know, next week, I'm not going to remember which of you guys wrote the joke, you know. I'm just right. going to know if it's a good episode or not. But there was at that time, there was so much money that writers were making. It was insane, and I remember like Peter Roth from uh, from uh, um, Warner Brothers Studio. He phoned me up and he goes, "What do you think of these two guys?" You know, uh, and they were middling writers. You know, yeah. I said, uh, "Why are you asking?" He said, "I'm thinking of giving them a five million dollar deal each." <laughs> so I'm not going to take a lottery ticket away from a guy. You know, they were both fine people. So I'm like, no, they're worth it. They're great. Why not? Like, who cares? Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ruin these guys' chances of having a giant house and car, you know. Uh, but that's what busted, uh, I believe that's what busted uh, sitcoms. Rightfully so. You know, like people go, ah, these reality shows. I'm like, well, it's not like sitcoms are good. <laughs> right, know? right. And uh, then I, you know, during that strike, I just go by, you know, there'd be people picketing. I go, well, you deserve, you know, you're getting way more than you deserve. I don't know why you're picketing. <laughs> you oh, know I mean? making a lot of money. Yeah, just these super rich guys with the <laughs> beautiful laminated, like, <laughs> they had hired someone $10,000 to write the perfect joke on their. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I. I really don't like collaboration much. Like, two is good, you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, it's like even if they were all super talented, you know, it would be like um, anything. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, wouldn't call it art, but, you know, uh, if you had Picasso and Rembrandt and uh, that's the only two guys. <laughs> and then another I Picasso, another Rembrandt guy, Jr. Jackson Pollock, you know, <laughs> and you had them all together. Okay, let's start, you know, and... Uh, it'd just be a mess. Ob yeah. Obviously, it would be a mess. You yeah. need a singular vision for that. But I also feel like, and you couldn't be noted because Picasso. They go, hey, what's with the nose? Yeah, you know what I mean. They were right off the top. And it the is Cubism an interesting that 
Picasso is the 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 most famous, well paid uh, painter in the whole world, and then you would think that's a niche painter. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it's very strange to me. You'd think it would be Rembrandt, or you'd think it'd be a realist. You know? Yeah, but it was it was just that style. But he was also he was also amazing at that as well. But he just oh he know, was oh I didn't yeah, know that oh. it's just this this style that have developed over time oh I didn't that know sort that sort of became the yeah oh so he was he was like an expert like they always say with any type of art you got to learn how to do it properly before you can yeah exactly before you can deconstruct, before you can deconstruct it but I think. But in your case, just as a comedy fan, I feel like your voice is so specific. I can't imagine someone writing for you because you, you see, when I think when I think of comics that I adore, that I think you know, like someone like Maria Bamford, I'm like, you can't write for Maria. She's uh-huh. just that's just how you know uh-huh. that's just her voice. It's uh-huh. just the kind of the voices in her brain that uh-huh. make that happen. I mean, I still remember. I still have this thing in my head that you said, and I must have seen it 25 years ago, but it was something to the effect of, them's mean streets if you're a wiener dog and a cardigan. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so true. I can't, back. how could you tell someone to write that, <laughs> you know? Going, like That's going back, baby. That's going, that's going back quite a ways. <laughs> that's going back. You know, when I met Gary Shandling, there are some jokes, because I've always loved stand-up comedy. I've sort of been a student, you know, of the, of it, you know? And uh, when I met Gary Shandling, there was a joke that he did that was so mysterious to me how he wrote this joke. And the joke was, uh, he says, uh, so anyways, I'm uh, I'm dating uh, Miss Georgia. All right, it's the former Miss Georgia. Okay, it's George Foreman. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was like, how did you do that? <laughs> like, how did you reverse engineer it from George Foreman? Or uh, it seemed like divine to me somehow. <laughs> or divinely inspired. What did he say? Say. he said? He said, I don't fucking know. What are you talking about? It was, uh, it was before he became like the Zen you know, teacher. He was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? I, like, I don't know. Do you- He'd be so funny off stage. <laughs> I remember one time at the, at the G spot, you know. He's like, have you heard about this G-spot, Norm? I go, yeah, I heard about it. And he goes, Jesus, I don't know how to find these fucking... He goes, I wouldn't even know how to find a guy's balls. (laughs) (laughs) So he's just so so fucking funny in person. And then later he became sort of a Zen-like teacher of... Not teacher, but, you know, he was... To all the young comics, you know, he would sort of... uh, be very kind and uh and it was nice to see you know well Ma- jed apatow was saying that he was so meticulous that he had these notebooks which which were just uh in- intense almost mathematical deconstructions of comedy and how uh-huh. jokes work and why this is funny and why that's not funny and the di- the dynamics of a room and, yeah, yeah, yeah i mean he really seemed to be a, an actual student of the, of the science of the science of, of the it. science right. of comedy but um you know uh, i saw seinfeld did a thing in, in the New York Times where it shows how he made a joke from nothing. And I don't like that. You don't like it? No, I don't like that. And and, and I knew Gary real well, and I wouldn't speak ill of Gary. I mean, he was one of the best comics that ever lived. But um, that idea of uh, mathematically understanding comedy... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that it's not an art because and the reason I know it's not an art is because an art can be interpreted uh, different by you and by me. Sure. 
But if you go and do stand-up, you have to make a noise. You have to make the audience make a noise all together, all at the same time. So then it's craft. It's not art, you know, because people can't go, I like that part. I like that. Because then people would be laughing all at different parts. You know what I mean? It would be but when you get but, jumble. But on a, on a larger scale, though, when you take comedy out of that intimate situation, that does happen, though. People go, oh, I heard about this. That wasn't funny. Or I saw this thing and that wasn't funny. Oh, Especially sure. with the internet now. But it's either not funny or funny. Right, it's right, right. Like, There's only one or two. Like funny it's very binary way. that way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so um, this idea of uh, arithmetically, or arithmetically rather, uh, deconstructing uh, comedy, uh, I think. You know, there was that famous quote by Mark Twain, and I, I'm going to blow it, but... He says, you know, uh, dissecting comedy is like dissecting a frog at the end. Uh, you know, nothing of interest is good, except you got a dead frog. <laughs> right. So, uh, well, that's the Steve Martin thing of he, you know, from what I understand of his early stand up was that, you know, he wanted things to be funny, but you never knew exactly why they were funny. They were just funny. Uh-huh. Is that, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember he said, uh, you know, if he, uh, he was worried about writing a movie, he didn't know if he could write a movie. And I don't know who told him, maybe it was Carl Reiner, but he said, um, you're funny, so just write a movie, and then the movie will be funny. And he said that was very simple, but it was an epiphany to him. that He was like, yeah, I can be confident that whatever I do will be funny because I'm funny. And uh, so that made a lot of sense to him. You know, his book, the only thing that bothered me about his book... Born Standing Up. Born Standing Up, which I thought was a fantastic book, except for what you were talking about, his early... He shows his early jokes, you know, and there are these great jokes from his album, you know, and I know they were his early jokes. Like, oh, were, right, 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 because they, they were on the album, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, they were like fantastic What were jokes. his early, early That's jokes? That's what I would love to see. Yeah. But of course, who would have the balls to put those out? You know what I mean? I have a, a, a tape of uh, my uh, fourth time on stage. Have you ever played it anywhere? Uh, well, just for myself. They had it uh, in Ottawa. This guy, the manager, taped it. I did an hour. Oh, my God. <laughs> my Your fourth, fourth time? Yeah, Holy fourth shit. Time on stage. I, I, I did amateur night one night. Was this at a Yuck Yucks? A Yuck Yucks. Yeah. There's only two comedians in Ottawa where I started, so I was very lucky. <laughs> so I, I went from uh, amateur night to headliner in a month. Holy shit. So, uh, but uh, it was all awful, you know? So uh, he had it, and I was like, I got to get it, you know? So he had it in some vault or something, you know? <laughs> this precious thing to him. And so I said, I got to get it. Um, you know, they just made up something. I go, they're doing a documentary on me, and then they want to talk to you. <laughs> and then uh, I just made up a whole bunch of stuff to to make him think that he'd be on TV. I go, they want to talk to you, but they need that, like, for, you know, early to get it in the can. You know, just saying all this nonsense words, you know, that I think will impress them. <laughs> so I get the tape, and uh, I not only, uh, I watch it once, and I destroyed it. I, not, I, I didn't even keep it. You destroyed it? Oh, it was so awful. You know, that's why I'm saying if I had the balls, I would I would say here are the jokes, because to show people, you know, um, uh, you can be a stand-up. You know, uh, you could be a great stand-up like Steve Martin, even though this these were his real first jokes. Right, and you just see these terrible jokes because everybody's first jokes are terrible. You yes, know? that's just 
And so uh, I think that would help a comic, you know, uh, instead of when they read like, whoa, that was Steve Martin's first bit was, uh, you know, let's get small. That was his first. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he just sat down and wrote stage. that? That's yeah. very specific. <laughs> but you said, but in the... You know, with the with the book, there were some bullet points that got sent over the book. Like, oh, you know, Norm tells a lot of these stories in the book about the time he uh, disastrous appearance on Star Search. Uh-huh. But I had remembered your Star Search, and I went back and watched it again, and it wasn't disastrous. Oh, what? It wasn't disastrous. First of all, you only had two minutes, yeah, two which minutes. was a ridiculous. Isn't that an insane? That is short ridiculous. Amount, huh? Yeah, they run it backwards from two minutes. Two minutes to, <laughs> to do stand up, but I thought the joke, the jokes were no, good. The jokes were all right. The jokes were fine. And I thought the crowd was. I thought the crowd reacted. Oh God! Did you see the guy after me? No, I just oh, saw. I just oh, saw your clip. Oh. Who was the guy after you? Uh, the Bushman. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Liberian. Okay. Although later, I, I, someone told me he was from Seattle. <laughs> but uh, and he wore a long, flowing uh, uh, robe, and a, you know, he had a hat. It was it was called International Star Search. So I was from Canada, the least international country, <laughs> and then he's from Liberia. And uh, well, you're from Quebec City, so that's a little more international, right? Yes, okay. if I had any jokes about that. <laughs> okay. But all my jokes were about domestic American <laughs> affairs. So, uh, which at first I thought would be a, um, stupidly, I thought would be an advantage, you know. But then, of course, uh, later I realized, no, they want an international guy. But, oh, no, it didn't go well. I remember uh, when Ed came out, he almost laughed like he... He said, another tough decision for our judges, and people were laughing, and Ed, thank God, didn't laugh. My favorite moment on it, and I can't find it anywhere, was you get to talk to Ed McMahon. So after your, I mean, it was horrible for me, but I walked over and I get to talk to Ed McMahon, which is what I was looking forward to like crazy. And when you're standing beside Ed McMahon, you kind of feel like Johnny Carson, you know, and you know he's the perfect statement. But he can ask you a question, you don't know what it is. So he said, uh, he said, now, Norm, you're from Canada, and uh, tell me, what do you find are the differences between Canadian audiences and American audiences? So I go, I, I feel that the American audiences have better shoes. <laughs> So he laughs crazy at that. And then he goes, we will return with our international spokesperson right after this. Shoes. That was just the last word. His brain was just probably exactly. like a, an alcohol rag, just soaked at that point. I felt so good, though. When I did my first Letterman, I felt... It was funny, you know, because so much fluke is involved in show business. You right. Know? So much luck. And uh, so I did uh, Catch a Rising Star to do my audition for David Letterman. And I destroyed, like I've never destroyed before, you know. And so I get off, and Robert Morton, who booked the show at the time, he was like, That was great. He goes, I never do this, but you're I'm putting you on the show now. I never he made a big point of how I never did that. And this was the first time, and he was going to put me on the show. And. Everything was perfect. And so I had a teensy-weensy tape recorder I had taped my uh, set on, you know. And he goes, just do that exactly what you did, you know. So I go, "That's I can't do that because I've got it on my recorder. So I go back to Toronto. It was like a two-month gap. Every single night, I was worried about it getting too rote, you know. But every single night, I do the exact same, you know, until it's just burnished in my brain. 
And then, uh, so I come back, and then the way it works is you you go and you do a set uh, the night before, you know, to warm up. He takes you around the, the area. So we went to the exact same club, Catch a Rising Star. I go on, and I bomb. Like, no one laughs at all. So I get off. I don't care, because I'm already going to go on ladder. I'm completely confident in the in the material, you know. But uh, Robert Morton's in a panic. So <laughs> he goes, "What? Do you, why'd you change it? He goes, and it was word for word. He goes, why'd you change it? So I was thinking, like, should I take out the tape recorder, which I have, and play it for him? But I felt like I was dead. So I go, yeah, I changed it around. <laughs> <laughs> I'll change it back. Yeah. He's like, oh, you always do us. No, you got that. was stupid. I go, no, I know. I know, Bob. But I just felt... Uh, Move things around, new jokes. No. <laughs> so then I, I did, then I go to the show. I do the exact same set again, and it kills. So, you know, if I had bombed the first time, forget about it. Did he it. notice when you went on Letterman? Was no, he like, no, no, he, he didn't, didn't notice, notice at all. No. Like you know, these guys go like, you know, we don't care how you do. Like in the, uh, you know, I go see you, catch and. Yeah, if you bomb, we don't care. We can see through that. It's utter nonsense. Yeah, of course. They get super nervous because they don't want to get. It makes, well, they're going to say, that guy that got no laughs. Perfect. You'll be perfect for the show. Did you immediately become pals with Letterman after the first time, or did did you have to go on a few times? uh, What do you mean by pals? I was never. I thought you guys were friends. Oh, I mean, no. you went on the. No, I was never friends with David Letterman. Oh, I, I just had this. I just had the. You're just going on his last week of shows. Yeah, yeah. I just assumed. We, no, like, we had a. Uh, we had like a. We he talked to me, which I felt was nice, between commercials, which he never did with anyone else, you know, and uh, he was so funny, so incredibly funny, you know, but, but what he'd say between the commercials, and uh, and sweet to me and stuff. And he would invite me uh, to these dinners, you know, which I really should have gone to. <laughs> but uh, um, but I felt like I was on the show so often. And every time I was on the show, I had my little, you know, in between uh, uh, the commercial thing to talk to him. And those were my favorite times, you know, and he'd say, he'd say anything, you know what I mean? It was like swearing and... I remember I, I, I reminded him of a joke because I knew everything about him, you know, because I'd watched him since I was a kid. And he did this joke that was so... I, I said, remember this joke? And I told him, he goes, he goes that, that joke would get audible gasps from the audience because it was such a rough joke. Yeah. But it, it was so hilarious. And what it was was... <laughs> Paul Newman's son had died. <laughs> so it said on the front of the National Enquirer, it said, uh, so this is how Letterman told the joke. He goes, so I saw the National Enquirer this week and it said, why Paul Newman does not like to talk about his dead son? Boy, there's a puzzler, huh, folks? There's <laughs> Paul Newman sitting around his uh, swimming pool with his other Hollywood uh, stars and... Uh, Somebody says, uh, oh, by the way, uh, Paul, how's that dead boy of yours doing? <laughs> Say, I don't like talking about that. <laughs> now I feel, I hope to God he doesn't hear that. <laughs> and then I heard him do it on our show, and he said, you know, why, he changed it to uh, why famous movie star, you know, which I probably should have done. 
That's all right. Paul Newman's dead. That's okay. That's true. It's totally fine. You're right. It's totally fine. There's some descendant of Paul Newman. We're like, wait a minute. I actually have another story about that, Paul Newman, because I watched Larry King once. This was the strangest thing I ever saw a guy say. But Larry King has this weird thing where he's sort of psychotic. I'm going to go be interviewed by Larry King. But uh, he's sort of like he's seen it all and nothing affects him kind of. And uh, so he was talking to a person who had lost their child, you know, uh, like eight months earlier or something. And they were saying how hard it was. And then he says, Paul Newman told me you never get over it. I'm like, what did he just say to, the, to this drop? grieving parent? Like, yeah, it was name drop. drop. It was exactly, it was it's name, name dropping. It's a name drop. I and never also, thought of that. It no was hope. name dropping. No hope whatsoever. Right, right. You're right. It was That was the reason he did it. I was wondering why he would make such a psychotic statement. But he was just name dropping. He could have just yeah, said, never get over it. I heard you never get over it. Well, even that. <laughs> that's the bad part. He could have just said, I know Paul Newman. <laughs> I know Paul Newman, and your child is still dead. We'll be right back after these. <laughs> That's a terrible. Oh, was just awful. I can't believe I told two stories. Those about... are both great stories, though. <laughs> those those Newman, are both great son. stories. I, I was looking. I saw the. Um, I saw some. Do you remember the last time I think we met? You were. Uh, uh, this is why it's incredible. Your success is not incredible. You know. No, you, I. But I. You've worked hard, and you've made this amazing. Uh, uh, American success story, <laughs> but you were when I last saw you. I, it was a roast, yes, and you were interviewing people coming out of the roast. I remember, and I had it's done, a Saga roast, a Saga roast, and I guess you didn't watch the roast because I had done like just cheesy jokes. I saw that part was the only part I saw of the roast. Oh, you, they had me back. Oh, you did sitting see in the audience for yeah. the index cards. And the oh, jokes. you did. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Yes, I was worried that you hadn't. No, seen that, and I was like freaked out when you were there asking post-show questions. No, yeah, that you was did. Strange. You didn't ask pre-show questions, did you? No, I, yeah. they had me on the carpet with for the arrivals, uh-huh. and then they had me talking to people afterwards. Uh-huh. Um, and now, uh, did you like that? Did I like the show? No, no, doing that. N- well, I, you know, it was. I love Bob. I've been friends with Bob. Oh, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. I mean, I, I've been friends with Bob for almost 20 years. Oh, so you years. only did it for that one show. No, at the time, oh. I would have done it anyway because I was, you know, it was like I, I, my career had dipped at that point. And so if anyone asked me to do anything, I would have do done yeah. it. But I also, you know, I'm comfortable talking and hosting, uh-huh. and I like hosting. And so, uh-huh. especially because of Bob and because it was Comedy Central, sure. I'm like, sure. Sure. And, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't do that stuff anymore. Uh-huh. Like, I don't do red carpet stuff anymore. Uh-huh. But, um, but before you created this empire, <laughs> um, you were sort of in a category with Ryan Seacrest. I would say that's accurate. And with uh, Carson Daly. Yeah. Uh, guys that uh, were, you know, broadcasters and hosts. Which, was, which, for me, the hard thing was that I'm... You know, first and foremost, I've always been a comedian, and so yes. it's sort. So that's what I'm saying. That a lot of comedians would not like to d- exactly do that. because yeah. people go, "Oh, you're a host." Yeah, and even still, it's only been like the last couple of years where I, you know, when I perform, people go, oh, "I didn't know you did stand up." Right, right, like, right, right. Yeah, I've been doing that for like 20 years. Oh, I, no, I get that. All you the get time. that. How do you get that? Because I'm just, uh, I'm just. Seen as uh, the guy that was on SNL, or maybe the guy that got fired from SNL, I just, I just get pigeonholed. 
But I don't mind pigeonholing. Like, I understand pigeonholing, you know, someone. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Because one time I worked at an insurance company, and there was a guy that was the underwriter, and I was just supposed I was the lowest guy, you know. And uh, I came in, and I was eating a donut with sprinkles on it, right? And he's like, what are you doing? What's your donut? And I go, just a sprinkly donut. And he goes, oh, yeah, you like that, huh? And he was the rest of the entire time. I was there six months. He's like, hey, you got a sprinkly donut today? I'm like, no. I, he goes, hey, sprinkly donut guy. And I'm like, why are you? And that was being pigeonholed unfairly. Well, that's just laziness. Yeah. That's because he doesn't want to have a conversation. Yeah. He just wants to identify you quickly. Yeah. And also, he knows that conversation can't go any further. Because <laughs> you true. can only either say yes or no, I have a donut, or I do not have a donut. That's very good. There's, point, there's yeah. almost, it's almost a Schrodinger-esque you know, you're in one of two states at any given moment until observed. You have a sprinkly donut or you do not have a sprinkly donut. And that's the entire experiment. So that guy was just being lazy. Schrodinger-esque. That, is, that, is, that guy was just being fucking lazy. Yeah. It is. I, and I, I know it's kind of charming to be like, hey, there's the guy with the pants. Hey, look at you. Yeah, hey, yeah. glasses. Yeah, yeah. You know? But if that's every hey, day. This is with every single person. Every single day. Like, all right. Have <laughs> no, a conversation like, with the person. Come on, man. But I, I love, I mean. I have many more facets. Well, I loved the I loved the index card thing, and all the other comedians who were in the audience were folded over. Uh, in- well, some were like if you see the tape of it, there are some guys comedians that are clearly later to the joke than the other. Right, and I don't know if Jim Norton was ever there <laughs> uh, because he looked confused and all that. And then when he got up, he 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 said he said something. He always said uh, watching your set was like. Watching Henry Fonda pick blueberries, which I didn't understand. So I said, I don't think anybody would. I think every, you know, I think everyone in the world would enjoy watching Henry Fonda pick blueberries. Because I didn't understand the joke. Apparently it was from On Golden Pond or something. Right. He, that he had. Uh, but yeah, he. Uh, but afterwards, he was like, what the fuck was that? So uh, I like a semantical, logical argument about, you know, actually, I think. People, first of all, it would mean he's alive again, yes, which exactly. would be remarkable for humanity that resurrection exists. <laughs> no. Secondly, I mean, blueberries are delightful. Yeah, and because I hadn't seen the movie, it was such a non, <laughs> such a Schrodinger esque thing. <laughs> like Saget adores me. you more. I mean, like, do you, I, well, I know you and Bob are close. I mean, he's such a sweet guy. He he's is. Like, we haven't really hung out as of late, but oh, I remember. Yeah. Early on, I think before, because we actually, you, I hung out, I hung out near you a couple times with Bob. Yeah, we, I, we hung out. I was always just sort of quiet because I was you were kind of awestruck oh. and nervous. Oh, really? That's yeah. strange. Yeah, and you, well, I remember us upstairs at the Laugh Factory. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And you, I didn't notice any nerves from you or anything. Oh, I, I, I just always felt like I don't have anything interesting to say to these people. Well, that's they're weird. all, they're all. People that I adore and oh, respect oh, comedically, but Bob was so good with young comics. He's just a sweet guy. Yeah, he's just great. And just uh, you know that, especially for that era, that's very rare because those guys were uh, nowadays. Every you know, I, 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 my, you know, my son and his friend, they just, um, it's they're everyone's supportive of everyone, right? You know what I mean? I don't know if it's that's good or not. You know, like uh, Saturday Night Live. Lauren on purpose 
You know, he has a bowl of dog food and 14 dogs. You know? <laughs> he uh, makes everyone compete. Uh, yeah, and that's enough for one dog. And, uh, and that amount of food he's doled out. So, yeah, he believes that competition, capitalism, uh, will will produce the best, not collectives. Right. Not communism. And, uh, you know, I'm inclined to agree with that because... Um, um, Again, I don't like to collaborate. And on Saturday Night Live, you could write a sketch completely by yourself, which is what I always do. I never collaborated with anybody. I would help them do their sketches. Sure. But if I had an idea, I would never let anybody touch it. You know. So did you do Weekend Update all by yourself? Oh, no, not Weekend Update. No, okay. no, no. These were just sketches. Gotcha. No, Weekend Update, it's too hard to write that many jokes by yourself. But I, 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 what I did do is Weekend Update had always been lazy before that. They had uh, they just did it on Saturday. Believe it or not, they did it on Saturday, and everybody would sit around and eat bagels and uh, think up jokes. And a lot of them were picture jokes, you know, because mm-hmm. Dennis liked like just pointing at a picture and going, "Check this." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so they had a whole millions of pictures, and you go like this, and so uh, so. Anyways, it was kind of just sloppily done, I thought. And so uh, there were always people sending in jokes. And uh, so I said, I asked Lauren, can I just hire a couple of guys, you know. There was a guy named Herb Sargent, and he had written update for every anchor up till me. And I, and I said, uh, Lauren, can I fire? Um, <laughs> so Lauren goes, if you're going to shoot, you have to shoot to kill. Like Lauren always said these mysterious things. So I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, let's shoot to kill, man. <laughs> and he's like, mm, okay, if that's what you want. So I got Jim Downey, who was kind of the genius of uh, Saturday Night Live, and had just been fired as the uh, as the main as the head writer of the show. So I was very lucky, you know. So I got him to come on update, and uh, Herb Sargent, who was supposed to be fired, just shows up. Lauren never fired him. Oh shit! So um, <laughs> I'm hiding, you know. Whenever I see Herb Sargent, I'm ducking behind like pillars and stuff like that, and uh, he's going to the fax machine getting the you know. And uh, the copy machine changing his jokes because he would write like all the jokes, but and and you know Lauren uh, Herb Sargent was a guy who who gave Lauren his first job or something. Oh, so, and Lauren's very loyal. So um, uh, <laughs> so finally, uh, one day finally didn't show up. I don't know who finally had the courage to tell him. <laughs> but it happened a lot. Like, do you, do you ever remember a comedy named Warren Hutcherson? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very funny African American comedian, and so he was a writer. So of course, you know, all the comedians want to be performers. You know, so uh, Jim Downey was the head writer. He was second in command, and Lauren was first in command, of course. So Warren said, "You know, I, I can't stand the show. I, and as a writer, I want to be a performer." So. Uh, uh, Jim goes, well, that's great by me. You're so funny. You should be a performer. Just get Lauren's permission. So he goes to Lauren. And Lauren's like, I always thought you were more a performer than a writer, frankly, Warren. So, yes. Did you get Jim's permission? <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He told me to come here. He goes, just to solidify with Jim. And then he went, huh? So he goes back to Jim. And he goes, he said to solidify it with you? Like, and Jim said, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's fine with me as long as as long as you got do you get Lauren, you know." And he's like, so he goes back to Lauren. He goes, "Yeah, Jim said it's so solidified." He goes, "Okay, good. Then, well, then you're a performer. But 
just get Jim to find just just get him to sign off. <laughs> so Warren said this happened, and he's so he said to Jim like, "Can you come into Lauren's office like with him?" You know, and Jim's like, "I know," uh, you know. <laughs> so that well, it's nice about Lauren, but. Because I, I am the same way. I cannot fire anyone. I think you should have done it. I think it should have just been a random weekend update at the very end. And uh, as, as we're wrapping up the show, I'd just like to thank Herb Sargent for last show. <laughs> well, no, probably should have. <laughs> I mean, you say it, but it you probably... actually could have. You, but you were actually firing him on the show. I'm just firing him on the show. Oh, I see <laughs> yeah. what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know. He's just, <laughs> just taking it back. Big hand for Herb, everyone. <laughs> thank you so much. Because <laughs> then how can he come back after that? That's a good idea. It'd be really weird. And be. also, he should have had that. You know, he worked on the show since its inception. And uh, so anyways, I found, you know, uh, the guy, the writers on the show were pretty lazy. And, and uh, I wanted Update to be its own thing. And so I wanted outside guys, you know. So every people would fax all the time. And I read every joke, like OCD, like I, even if the first, you know, 100 were bad. <laughs> I remember a guy used to send... Hundred jokes a day, you know, every single day, and they were almost jokes, like, but never like funny enough. And I was like, I told Lauren, I said, should I phone this guy and tell him to stop? Like, <laughs> when, when do you, when is it your duty to tell someone to um, stop following their dream? You know, because it's very hard to write. It's just probably just as hard to write bad jokes. You know, I mean, you have to type sure and, on a whole bunch of pieces of paper. And uh, uh, so Lauren said, "Yes." He goes, "I was, you know." He said, um, "Somewhere in the, in the in the annals of show business, uh, there came a time when uh, when uh, someone said, never take no for an answer.' But no can be a very very good answer." <laughs> Did you have to all I can hear is that typewriter? Did you tell the guy? Did you finally tell him? My mind is like, can you hear that? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Are you transcribing everything we're saying? I'm writing down notes so I can write the description. Oh, I see, I see, I see. But the description is uh, an exact <laughs> one-for-one-word account of everything. <laughs> 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 every breath, every sigh. Wow, that's a great, uh, great picture. Oh, thanks. Very eclectic tastes. Yeah, I like a lot of weird... I collect a lot of weird stuff. What do you... I would love that. There was a, there was a pizzeria near my place where they had a... A uh, Mel Blanc, um, what do you call the... When it's, like a cell? Yeah, cell. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, they didn't know what it was, you know? <gasps> and uh, then they closed, and I was like, oh, I bet I could have bought that thing for $100. I buy all sorts of cells. This, I drew this. I painted this in high school because I, I wanted to be a cartoonist. You did? I did, yeah. And I found it... Like, did you copy it? No, well, I mean, it was an... Exi- yeah, I mean, I it was a it was from an episode of you know it was a, like a Wabbit season, Duck season episode. Yeah, but I but, but I there wasn't uh, the, you, there wasn't that picture which you just traced or anything. No, no, you no, no, did no, that. no, 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 and I found oh it my in a gosh. box like two years ago. Holy crow! And um, yeah, it was, why are you not a cartoonist? Um, because I like comedy better, and uh-huh. also there are much better cartoonists. I mean, I guess you could argue there are better comedians too, but. I, but you know what I hear from uh, from people who do animation that there aren't good cartoonists that 
it's not that there's bad cartoonists, but that the the cartoonists don't understand comedy, so they don't do you know like these guys bugs and they they all do different great takes, and you know and what I've heard is they send their funny script over to Korea, right, and they just have like you know. <laughs> These, uh, well, they do the in between. Yeah, they do the in betweens overseas. But, but I, I think you should be with the guy and I, say, I, "I want bugs to turn this." You, you know? should, yeah. yeah. And that's that's how that's how it was when these guys were when Chuck Jones uh-huh. and these guys were doing yeah. this. But and the guy I'm talking about did the next the junior, whatever the hell it was. You know, no, you know what he did? He did uh, apparently. The, you might be interested in this. Apparently, there was a sitcom. They did it as a, a cartoon sitcom mm-hmm. of uh, of Bugs Bunny and his friends. So, <laughs> like was, a three, like a fake three camera sitcom. Yes. Oh, that's crazy. Yes, I mean it would be fascinating to see, but uh, it's an awful idea. You know? <laughs> uh, there was a very crucial point in college for me where I was just starting to do stand up, which I had wanted to do my whole life, uh-huh. and then I submitted to. This studio called Spumco, this guy named John Crickfalusi, who did Ren and Stimpy. Mm. And they were like masterful artists. Yeah. And, uh, and I submitted and I didn't get hired. And then I was so intimidated by how good – I thought I was good until I saw their work. Uh-huh. And then – Their animation work. Animation work, yeah. And that was very much that thing where they were very hands-on. Like, well, they were animators plus writers. Yeah, and I they see. directed the episodes. Oh, and they, so they, they did, did everything. You know. Right. And so... Uh, and Red and Stimpy was the first, um, you know, a comedy of the grotesque for, for, for cartoons, right? Yeah, I mean, it was the first, you know, John Kay, well, it'll, uh, not to bore you with it, but John Kay was kind of a student of Ralph Bakshi, and Ralph Bakshi, oh, was, yes, you know, yes. in the 70s, had was very, like... Had a very kind of grotesque edge yeah. to him in a great way, yeah. And so John, but but, but, but but why do I know that name? But I can't. Ralph Bakshi muster the. He did like uh, Fritz the Cat and oh yes, um, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, yeah. and um, uh, wizards and yes. he just like did a lot of Fritz know. the Cat was a movie. Fritz the Cat was a movie. It was basically like a a dirty animated yeah, movie. Like yeah, it was cats. like they swore and there was you know he was kind of the street cat. Yeah. Didn't they- they have sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very yeah. sexual yeah. and yeah, yeah. It was very dirty. It was seventies. Yeah, it was, 70s. It was Ralph 70s. Bakshi, but you know, what else did he do? Um, he did Mighty Mouse in the eighties. He did a version of Mighty Mouse, but oh. he kind of had to conform a little bit. Oh. So his sensibilities. It's kind of funny, you know, when you're younger and you be like, "Fuck everything," and then you start to get older, and you're like, you know, maybe I'll just take the job. Maybe I'll just do it. I got a friend right now. Well, I won't say who it is, but uh, you probably know him. I'll tell you after. But he's in that situation where. He was given a, a – he created a three-camera show, but he's not a three-camera guy. You know? Oh. And uh, so now he – so I said, nah, just grab the cash. You know, you got, <laughs> you got kids. You got an ex-wife. You got alimony. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you need money at some point. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, that's like when people go, you sell out. You know, there's a famous like uh, video of Bill Hicks like screaming about Jay Leno selling out. It's so ridiculous because Jay Leno did a Cheetos commercial, Doritos, uh, Doritos. Yeah, he did Doritos, and yeah. I think that was on like Rant and E Minor. So like he put it was I think it's on one of his stand up albums. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it was a, it was a long bit he did. Yeah. <laughs> and then first of all, I thought that's kind of I don't think you're supposed to go after other comics, but. Um, you know, he could have gone after a lot of people if it just came down to selling out, whatever that means. 
I mean, uh, presumably Bill Hicks, you know, uh, performed in clubs that sold b- liquor. Right. Uh, so, I mean, everything's selling out. I mean, unless you uh, just sit in your home and create art for yourself. You know? <laughs> well, I think, I think selling out is, t- is violating your personal belief system for some type of gain, uh-huh. financial gain or power gain or whatever it is. But if you know if if Leno, but didn't what was have a, Leno's act that he was? Did he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If he didn't have a particular, you know, like, boy, I really hate Doritos. Hmm, Doritos is going to give me <laughs> exactly. some money. Hmm, right, right. So I better rethink uh, that. Of you know, like, he probably was neutral on Doritos, yeah. and someone said, "Hey, here's a million dollars." Well, exactly. sure, why not? And then he said, "You know, uh, Leno has no right to call himself a comic." And I was like, "Well, how about the right of?" He's a million times funnier than you. Like, <laughs> well, does that give you? Does that give him a right to call? Leno was a spectacular comedian. When I, yeah, when I said he was like Elvis, you know. I mean, you know, did you ever see him when he was just? At yeah, his when peak? he used to go on Letterman, God. and he was super fiery and yeah. had the and way way edgy and unbelievable. And I saw him live, and he moved. You know, he was powerful. Like even like you know after they got famous, like like Seinfeld would go on the Improv. You know, they go Jerry Seinfeld. People applaud for ten minutes. And then he'd do his act, you know, it'd do well, of course, sure. but it wouldn't destroy it. But Leno would just be, you know, performing his heart out, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just crushing, like, he didn't he didn't rest on his laurels, you know, at all. And, uh, you I know, see- I, I didn't like him. I certainly, you know, can understand why people don't think he was a, a great talk show host. Uh, however... Um, I do not understand the animosity directed toward him. You know, I think for some people it probably was there was a there was definitely a shift in his presentation between his comedy oh. and then and then the show. Sure. You know, because they're two different modes, and he probably just assumed like, oh, okay, well, this guy, this the guy who's hosting the show, probably needs to be more congenial yes. and. Not, he, you know, he, he made a calculated decision. It was a calculated decision, yeah. and you know, because he couldn't, because is that? I mean, he would have fucking steamrolled everyone if he was that guy hosting that oh, show. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah, he would yeah. Have, the, the, the guests wouldn't have had a chance. And he's also a ridiculously smart guy, and I think he probably once he got into the job was legitimately just not that interested in talking to people that he probably felt like. Well, I mean. I'm probably a lot smarter yeah. than this person, and yeah. I don't really care who the fourth lead on ER, like what no. they have to say about no. stuff. And it's not his fault. He was offered no. this, you know, fifteen million dollars a year. Why? Well, of course he would. And it's also Johnny's show. Like uh-huh. it was a big thing. Yeah, it was a course. huge honor. It was a big and, honor. Uh, he, he was real smart, also, and he made the monologue twenty minutes. You know, and uh, Le- and uh, uh, Letterman wasn't used to a long monologue because at the time Carson. Um, said you couldn't do a monologue right? as one of his conditions to do 1230. So Letterman instead did this you know, three or four joke anti-monologue, kind right. of, you know, uh, which was great. But, you know, I remember one time being at The Tonight Show and, and Jay's like, well, yeah, I, don't get it. I don't understand Dave. Like, why is it? It's the better show. You know, his show is much better. You know, he said that right to me. Like, he knew that Dave's show was better. But he, he, but what drives comedians crazy is no one else had that connection to the audience as Jay Leno did. Right. You know, nobody. And uh and he crushed everybody. You know? And when he left he was he was number one. Yeah, and I think there's also a um I think he also probably got dinged for being um 
I don't know. Like, I think it was probably like, oh, he just wants to be number one. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I feel like no matter what, people shit on you no matter what. Like, if you, you know, uh-huh. no matter if, if he would. If you're popular. If you're popular. Because, uh-huh. you know, people even started kind of turning on Letterman, you know, like. They toward did, the, toward which the, uh, shocked me. Yeah. Yeah, that really shocked so me. So I think it's just. Why did they turn on him? I heard that he, they said he was political. I've heard that from a lot of people. I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know. I think it's just the nature of the ebbs and flows of social dynamics. It's like, yeah. how could he, how could people love someone for 30 years nonstop? There would have to be a, oh, it's a discovery uh-huh. period. And then, uh, oh, we love, oh, now a backlash. Oh, right. now it's cool to like yeah, him again. Right. You know, it's just, yeah, it's no, just it's the nature. Long, I think it's just the time. nature. But you said something, I, I think it's an article of, maybe it was Esquire. There was an article where you were talking about how you thought the state of comedy itself was kind of declining a little bit, or like there was a, you had some criticisms about the state of comedy in, and I think some of it had to do with maybe the kind of confessional yeah. style that. This is what Rich Schneider told me, and I'm, I don't watch comedy very much. I don't watch young young people do yeah. comedy. Uh, but uh, yeah, Rich Schneider was telling me, you know, what they do now is confessional comedy, <laughs> and uh, I went. To a club, and I watched the comedians, and I I understood what he was talking about. Like, you know, they would, yeah, they would say, you know, about how they got molested when they were a kid, and, uh, and, you know, without going into names. Like, if you have, uh, like, I saw a one woman show once by a woman. Mm -hmm. Just one? Yeah, I don't know. And uh, she was like, well, my mother had breast cancer, you know, and. And now I have breast cancer, and I'm like, well, it's everybody. Like, they think it's so special when everyone gets cancer and dies. <laughs> like, that's not great. What if we just ended the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, the, the, it's almost like uh, the height of narcissism to think that you're uh, you're going to, um, you know, you're going to be so brave as to uh, talk about it. In person, right. Whereas all you're doing is just garnering sympathy for yourself. I guess it's that's a, true. How's that brave? It seems cowardly to me. It seems much braver to me. Like I remember Richard Farnsworth was a old character actor, and he did a, a David Lynch movie called The Straight Story, mm-hmm. and uh, riddled with cancer. You know, his last movie, and uh, very frail. And it's a fantastic movie. If you ever get a chance to uh, see it, uh, it's by it's a it's not a uh, it's not a, um, a style because I I don't really I'm not really that big a fan of, uh, of uh, what's his name David Lynch yeah I'm not a fan of I don't understand weird stuff <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like huh what like but this one is a straight ahead story you know you think. I call it like a hard G. It's G rated. Okay. But, yeah. G. I call it hard G. <laughs> because the second time I watched it, I'm like, whoa, I understand it all of a sudden. Well, you got to see this movie. Okay. And if you watch it closely, there's like hellish things going on underneath the surface of what looks like a quaint story. It's based on a guy who in actual real life drove his... Uh, riding lawnmower across the state to visit his brother who was dying. So anyways, the point of it is that Richard Farnsworth was nominated for an, uh, an Academy Award for the movie. And if he had said he was, he was filled with cancer, 
he would have won for sure. Sure. But instead, he didn't say it. And uh, in fact, no one knew it. Uh, his family didn't know it. He kept it from everyone. And then he did, he was a stuntman before he was an actor. He did what they call a stuntman's death, which is you put a shotgun in your mouth and you with your toe you pull the trigger and blow your head off. Oh my god! And so that to me is courageous. Like you you know you're not being a burden to your family. You know they know nothing about it. And then uh, you're gone. <laughs> and then that's it. Yeah. And they, then toe in the shotgun. Yeah. And uh, and you know they write him. Uh, he wrote a nice letter to everybody you know, in the family and said that you know, he didn't want to he, that the reason he did it is he didn't want to cause people distress so I thought wow how incredible like how many to just go through it alone yeah, so you don't think you go through it alone you don't think you would write confessional like do you you didn't talk about any of the gambling stuff in your stand up did you like, was that in stand up no 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 never no never I, I you know I, I I never talked about me really you know i talked about universal me you know what i mean right that i was afraid of death or that uh you know that kind of thing which is um something that everybody is afraid of you know and um and so things like that that it was me but it was everybody sure i wasn't pretending that it was a specific right um, ailment that I had, and if I had a specific ailment, and possibly I do, you don't know. I don't. I don't know. Uh, but I would not talk about it. I would not. Uh, I hope that I would not discuss it, and and uh, just to try to try to uh, benefit monetarily from the from that. But you tell some of which the other people and... get, which other people get it, and they get nothing. But you tell stories in the book, though. Uh huh. So that is, in a way, you're sharing it. Right. Well, I don't tell stories though that are. Um, I tell stories about my gambling. Sure. But uh, you know, I, I don't really think of gambling as a, a much of a, a sure an illness. <laughs> like I think I say in the book, like it's the only illness where you can get incredibly wealthy. <laughs> you know, you don't get osteoarthritis. <laughs> That's a good joke. You're gonna get your dime one. I, I do put a lot of jokes. In the book, there's so many jokes. I'm like, God damn, that could have been in my act. <laughs> it's amazing what happens when you sit down and force yourself to write. It is. It's incredible. Well, you know, first of all, you, you think about your life, you know. Because Socrates said a life unexamined is not worth living, which I don't agree with, but especially after examining my life. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of depressing because um, when you really look at your life, you realize you don't do hardly anything, you know. Eating food is huge mm -hmm. amount of time. Like buying food, going to restaurants, finding people to eat with you for the next meal. Right. Food, food, food. Uh, that, that's most of your day, uh, especially when you're doing stand-up on the road. Yes. <laughs> Trying to find uh, uh, food. So when you look at it, it's so mundane, and, and that's not how I, I want to remember. I'd rather remember things... Like, for instance, when I, when I was a little boy, my dad had a Bell & Howell 8mm camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, film. There was film in it, you know? And he would take pictures of our, uh, our like, a birthday party, you know? And just be all these little kids, like, waving, you know, and uh, sort of, like, in a kind of pixelated manner. And the colors were garish, and, you know, uh, and it, you know, it was 
bright lights, you know, the brightest light right in your face. And anyways, it would take 15 seconds because my father didn't want to, it was expensive <laughs> in a film. And, but I have it, and when I look back on it, it's this, it's the way that memory is. Like, it's this sort of unreal colors and uh, and things like that, you know. So uh, uh, then uh, I cut to me with my son years later and I had a video camera you know and so I taped his fifth birthday and it was like two hours and then I watched it and I'm like I'm not going to show this to my kid like it's just the most banal nothing (laughs) nothing happens just a kid walks from here to here and then he's off another kid walks here and then another kid and then they say nothing to each other and uh I'm like, I'm not going to show this to my kid. Like, I want him to remember things as he thought they were, not as they actually were. Sure. And so the, the a lot of the book is, 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 is um, you know, is uh, meditations on memory because I've always found it odd that people remember things falsely. And I know it's false because I'm in the story. Mm-hmm. So a guy will go, remember that time you caught that big fish? I go, I never fished in my life. <laughs> it was a huge fish. I'm like, I'm telling you, I've never caught I've never gone fishing. I've never been in a boat. Ah, man, it was fun. We went and ate it in a cabin. I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, They're so convinced of it right. you know, uh, that even the person, that, and then I start to go, I don't know, maybe I caught a fish. Like, you know, then my memory suddenly becomes uh, suspect. You know, so so a lot of the book is uh, is uh, sort of reflections on what memory actually is, and uh, and how you look backwards, and you know, kind of what the past is, you know, because it is to me faulty memory. Sure. And you know, people say live in the present, which is fantastic if you can do it, but on the other hand, who who lives in the present? Alzheimer's patients. <laughs> they do. That's absolutely and true. It's a nightmare. And here's an interesting thing: a person will go, like, if you could go to, a, I'm going to ask you a question, Chris. Okay. If you could go to the greatest like island of your choice mm-hmm. and go with the most beautiful woman of your dreams, and uh, for a, a month have a fantastic. A tropical paradise. Mm-hmm. But in return, you don't remember any of it when you get home. Would you accept that bargain? Ah, that's such an interesting philosophical question because it it really divides people between who are going to live in the moment and who are doing things to remember the. I mean, I, well, people do. That's the interesting thing. People go, "I'm going to go to Hawaii and I'm going to get the best pictures. To, well, I'll take them, bring them back. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that I a hundred percent. So they're going to go to a place in the future to to record the past, right? Know, uh, to for yeah, I completely. So, and, and you know, in this uh, decision, you have to make. A month of your life goes by. Right. It's gone. Do I recognize that there's a, a month hole in my life where I go, I don't... How is it September? What happened to August? Yeah. Or Okay, so there is a gap. Yep. See, that's kind of a, a problem month. because I would feel like, well, I have some sort of a neurological disorder. How could I just lose a month of my life? And if <laughs> well, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> Forget about the neurological this? disorder. This is a Twilight Zone. Okay, this is a Twilight Zone A guy Zone comes up to you. From, okay. Uh, you know, mm. A guy comes Submit up to you. Submit for your approval. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I think I would because I, f- I still feel like it'd be a great month. Yeah, it'd be a great month. And it would be a nice bonus to be able to remember that month. But then also the other side of it is, you know, that's does the other person, does my wife also have... Oh, your wife. Well, I just got married, so I say my wife. Does my no, wife... your wife is in it too. <laughs> As I was saying that, I was like, I think Chris is married. Just got married. Yeah. But does she remember it too or is it wiped from her memory? Oh, memory? no, it's wiped from everybody's memory. I still think you do it. I still think you do it. It's you still a great it. month. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, you know what I'm maybe it was a so. weekend. I'd be There's like, three oh, other people weekend. that, even though they're not on mic, exist yeah. within the room. So if you guys uh, have a vote. Would you vote? What would you do, Katie? You would do it, Deb? Really? You would wow. do it, too. Would you not do it? No, I wouldn't do it. No. You wouldn't do- I'm just going to say no. Yeah. Because you just feel like if you can't rec- if you can't recall the experience and it didn't happen, then it's useless. Yeah, I mean it's basically it, you're, you're loosely probably plotting out what the storyboards were for Total Recall. It's I never like, saw that movie. Is that oh, that's basically that? the movie. It's like uh-huh. you the whole the whole concept of the movie was they would implant memories of things that you didn't actually do, but you would remember. And so you know wow. Schwarzenegger's character has this psychotic break because he doesn't know you know. It's he's kind of acting out this thing that he was supposed to be a memory. I don't know, but it's that like sounds it's, great. It's that idea. There's, there's movies I don't watch because you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in them, <laughs> and then they turn out like they're great. Well, like, that uh, one's a good one. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a fun movie. That's a fun movie. But I guess it's so. Does... Anyways, I guess I was thinking when I wrote based on a true story that you know that the past is faulty memory mm-hmm. and the future is. The great catastrophe to come. We know right. what the future is. Right. So we don't want to contemplate that. Right. And uh, so then all we have is, is what we call the present, you know, which is obviously the past. Yes. Like what we've been doing for this time is, is not the present. It's all been the past. I recall. It's been the recent past. It's a very recent past. Yeah. Like that. I was trying to think of if you could, if this could be a self-help thing or something, uh, because all history, when you think about it, is ancient history. Once it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't matter if it happened 10 seconds ago or 10,000 years ago. Right. It's go- it's no longer exists. Mm-hmm. So if you could have that perspective, you know, like uh, if you meet an 80-year-old man, you know, and, you know, only in country and western songs are they brokenhearted. But if you realize, <laughs> if you meet an actual 80-year-old man, you're like, do you remember ever remember a girl breaking her heart? Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> They don't remember anything about that. You know, they're just trying to get through the day. <laughs> so if you could have that, if you could make yourself have instant perspective and go, well, what will I think in 10 years about this? Because right. You, you know, you get so emotional after, you know, you get fired so angry and you go, well, in five years, I won't be angry. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's basically a Christmas carol. It's like you're, you're just like you're, you're dealing with it's past, present, movie. and future. <laughs> <laughs> I should have seen these films. I came well, Christmas Carol was a book. Yeah, yeah, you could have, you know. But it's but that idea of of projecting into the future and going, am I still going to care about this? Oh, well, I, I know, know Christmas. Week, you know? I'm sorry, I know what you're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw, yeah. I thought you meant another. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen Christmas Carol. You've I saw Christmas. Rich Little's Christmas Carol. Did he do all of the? <laughs> of course, he did. Characters. Yeah. Now I was back. I'm Cary Grant as uh, the Ghost of Christmas. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was uh, Paul Newman was tiny too. <laughs> Wouldn't talk about his boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, just anybody he could do. <laughs> like, it didn't matter if they lived in the same era. <laughs> no, 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 no. Nixon was. Uh, I always thought it was Nixon was didn't sound anything like Nixon. But yeah, Nixon was screwed. You know, why are you buying that goose? You know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this is a real thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it might be on YouTube. Um, 
Okay, we just gonna look it okay, up. Okay, do we look to see if Rich Little's Christmas Rich Carol? Rich Little's A Christmas Carol. Is on YouTube? Yeah, it's pretty fast. God bless us, everyone. You know, I, I, I found a thing on YouTube, and I told it to Howard Stern. And then he uh, mentioned it a few times, and then it became sort of viral. And it became the... <laughs> that's Fucking it. Rich Little's A Christmas Carol. <laughs> 19, HBO, 1978. Wait, 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 what's, what's that? Well, that's Superman 2. Oh, that was, oh, that's an ad for Superman 2. There he is. Wait, wait. What, Dick Cavett. Well, that's Dick Cavett. What the hell? Boy, Rich Little's good. He looked just like <laughs> Dick Cavett. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. There's all the... Uh, well, this must be fascinating for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, a fantastic... Uh, I'm a kind of a Richard nixon ophile, and uh, I'll watch anything with Richard Nixon because I find him fascinating. Yeah. And... Uh, I kind of disagree with everybody else about Nixon. You know, I remember I was, uh, I was talking about Ariana Huffington mm-hmm. before she was before, before she, she had, had a post before she had an empire mm-hmm. like you. And uh, I said, you know, uh, like what's charisma? You know, because they say you know Kennedy had charisma, but Nixon had none. And yet, if I'm flipping through the channels and I see Nixon, I stop and I listen. You know, I find him fascinating and intriguing. So isn't that charisma? I just asked this on the air to her. And she goes, what, are you stupid if you think that? She must be stupid. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you're the one that married the gay guy. She married a gay guy. <laughs> that's, that's what she was famous for at the time before, before starting her empire. Did you know that? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, she married a guy. and then uh, She married a, it was kind of a, you know, a marriage of convenience to get Ariana more, uh, uh, publicity, you know. And his name was Michael Huffington. Oh, right, right, right. Got, gotcha, gotcha. Senator, yeah. So, uh, but he he was open. I'm not, you know, I wasn't like out. You didn't, yeah, yeah, of course. No, no. But yeah, so I find uh, Nixon to be just a fantastic, you know. I think, I think charisma, just on the topic, Yeah. I think charisma is about presence. Uh-huh. You know, like you can tell when someone's present in the moment. Yeah. And that's, an attractive quality because yes. I think it's a thing that most people – because if you're present in the moment, you must have a reason for being present in the moment and therefore you must have answers to questions that people have. So I think that's a – Wait, what does present quality. in the moment mean? I mean like you can tell that someone is locked into what's going on. You know, if, like if someone's having a conversation with yes. you, they're paying attention. They're looking you in the Do eye. Do you believe you're present in the moment right now? Right now I am. Do you believe I am? I believe you are as well. I believe that too. But I also I also know that there are times where I just drift. Sure. You know, it's like, oh, I'm thinking about I gotta turn in this. How thing amazing is it that you can read like eight pages of a book? You gotta reread them. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> you're turning the pages. You're reading the words, <laughs> and your well, mind the whole time is thinking about another thing that happened. Because one word triggers your brain, and then that just all of a sudden that word becomes like a ball of yarn to a cat in yes. your brain, where you just. Spin off right. and then. But why do you keep re- reading it? Though? Because your body is just on autopilot. On I guess your body yes, you're on instead auto- of. It's interesting that your brain can automatically 
do things. It's almost like women in, uh, that you see in uh, factories, you know, and their their hands are moving by themselves. Like, right. you know, they're doing things and they can talk with their friends. And, yeah. Or even knitting or something. That's just all muscle memory, but your brain can't focus memory. on more, more than one thing at a time. And that's it just... It can't. There's no such thing as multitask. You can't... You, you cannot, cannot multitask. purely multitask. No. You can do a bunch of things at once... If they're sort of... You can stop doing one thing and then do another thing and then go back to the... One or like that, or if your hands are... But you cannot focus on more than one thing at a time. No. It's, no, Im- it's no, impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. And I think yeah. that is, you know... And if you're doing it like you, you say automatically, I mean, that's the same thing as saying you're multitasking if you're speaking and sure. digesting food. Sure. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, that digesting of the food is a... I read a great thing called the, the second brain, the, the gut... The second brain. It was like fascinating how your your uh, digestive system works on its own without the without the necessity right. of a brain. And uh, even if the brain was cut out, the digestive system would continue. Oh wow! Yeah. It's, it's, well, they're even talking about yeah. using the gut bacteria as a therapeutic as a treatment for obesity because they it's they're basically doing a poop transfer. They're putting they're scooping out stool, and they can you know put it in another the the idea being that this uh-huh. bacteria is healthier and will create more balance in your in your gut there's uh-huh. a lot of stuff happens so in what the do gut. they do they smear the, they scoop the i like to think two people just put their butts up against each other <laughs> oh it's a transplant it's a transplant so yeah. they scoop the stool it's like gut bacteria yeah and they transplant it into oh. another person the theory being that what? that just creates a healthier balance that but it used I, to be a hobby of mine yeah <laughs> <laughs> I what? Never thought, yeah, I never thought it was. That's therapeutic. Yeah. <laughs> now, you, now you feel better. Now you know you're doing it's it for like science. The guy that uh, that uh, that you know uh, just looked at the piece of bread with mold on it and uh, invented penicillin. I could do something with that. Yeah. I bet that would help sick people. Yeah. But I also think this. Uh, like, but I would never go. Hey, this this stool I've scooped <laughs> from uh, my buddy's. But I should put this in my stomach. Yeah, I shouldn't have fun with it. <laughs> I probably should throw this away. Yeah, to be honest, I should probably. I'm not even sure why I'm holding on to this. It's a bad habit. <laughs> That's another thing. Life is. It's funny when you do an autobiography because you think you know you reflect on your life, and I really think habits are are everything. You know what I mean? And if you have bad habits, you're in trouble. Sure. But if you consciously say i'm going to have good habits your life just gets so much better you sure. know you go i'm going to drink water. that's going to be my habit instead of smoking cigarettes i'm going to drink water mm-hmm. and of course the bad habits are easier you know and to, to fall into and everything like that but i i know there's addictions also and stuff sure. like that i mean I, I don't know you know what i mean i don't really know because i don't know if research has been done where you know they say Something's an illness because an illness. Um, I don't know why they use that word really. Because an illness is something that you can be treated with, you know, um, narcotics or penicillin or <laughs> antibiotics. You know, and and you know, just calling a it might just be a bad choice. Like it might just be a bad habit. You might not be compelled to do it you know what i mean first of all it's fun to do you never hear people getting addicted to uh, terrible things you know what i mean well, well that's not true <laughs> as soon as i said it 
love the instant backpedaling. Eh, well, actually. <laughs> but they think it's good. Well, I think. If it's bulimia or something like that. Right. Well, or I also, cutting. I also think that. They get um, pleasure from it. This idea that uh, about how you can only focus on one thing. A lot of, I think a lot of bad habits form because people are trying to distract themselves from that one, you know, like that thing that they can't stop focusing on. That well, is, that thing would be your mortality. I suppose. I mean, if you were just all alone with nothing to do, I think that's where your mind would go. Right. And I think the more stuff you can do, the least, the lesser you can think of that, you know. And, and that uh, must go all the way back to what we were talking about with your dad retiring and just sitting around and be like, well, now it's just mortality all day, <laughs> exactly, every day. Exactly. And it's right there. You know, it's you just, know I, I, I tweeted uh, Richard Dawkins, a famous yeah, atheist. Yeah, I know he is. And, uh, yeah, of course, he just thinks I'm a moron, you know, because he went to Cambridge and I dropped out of high school. <laughs> but I asked him, I said, you know, why does life insist and they didn't understand what's that, what's that mean. I'm like, well, it means... I thought he was, like, smart. So I said, why does, why does life... I know what you mean. ...need to create other life? Right. Why does life have to... Why do you have to procreate? Why do you have to live? And fight to stay alive. Yeah, and survive, yeah. fight to stay alive and make sure that your, that your uh, genes stay alive. Why do you have to do that? You know, why, if nothing matters... Wouldn't the obvious thing to do be go extinct? <laughs> you know what I mean? To me, that would be the clear and and obvious, uh, self-evident thing to do. And, you know, in fairness to Richard Dawkins, he said, oh, well, that's a philosophical question that uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll ask my friends and I'll try to get back to you. So it was very nice. But, um, but I think it lies at the heart of theology you know and uh, you know and, and people of faith especially in this town you know they'll say you, you believe in an invisible man in the sky and they, you know they already throw on you their sure. ideas of what you believe in you know although you could they don't know what you believe you know they don't know what you think of as God you know but the one question that always bothered me and always bothers any everybody is how can children die if there's a benevolent God, right? And how can six million go through the chimney at Birkenau, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and this, so this is a question that I think I have an answer for because I think a lot about this kind of stuff because I'd really like there to be a God. I don't know at all. But I really would like there to be a God. Because mm -hmm. Sarah Silverman told me, she's like, so you really believe in it? I go, I'm trying, you know. <laughs> she's like, uh, you believe in an invisible man in the sky? You know, she says it that way. So I'm like, well, whatever, if you want to say it that way. <laughs> so she's like, well, good luck with that. Uh -huh. I'm like, well, it'd be, it's a good luck for you, too. You know, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> it's not like your your idea of like being thrown on the ground having dirt tossed on you is such a beautiful great idea yeah it doesn't that doesn't bother me uh, dirt thrown on you forever I mean yeah because I just sort of feel like it's probably just a blissful state of non-existence that I had before boy I'm gonna be really well, it's but if be you a have, huge bummer if that's not but the case. if you have a blissful state of non-existence then you you're talking about an afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, okay, blissful is probably the wrong word. I just meant I'm not aware of anything, you know. Uh-huh. I think it'd be great if there was something, but if there's not, I think the worst thing would be your consciousness lives on, but there's nothing. <laughs> so you just feel, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that would be hell. I uh, suppose. I mean, Nabokov, I think, was the guy who said, like, he saw a picture of himself. Um, uh, he, I'm sorry. He saw a picture of his parents. And his parents um, had his older brother and his uh, arm and her his mother had his older brother in her arms mm-hmm. and his mother and father and his older brother. But he had not been born yet. And he said he felt no grief or terror at, at that picture. Sure. Where he didn't exist. Right. So I thought that was very interesting. Like it's what you're saying. You know, right. That why be afraid of not existing? Because it's not really you that dies. It's the world that dies. Sure. And, and you know. Everything there is. Everything there is and everything. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be fantastic if there was some sort of a, a transformation of, oh, this is a conservation of emotional energy that, you know, once your emotional energy yeah. forms, it can't ever be destroyed. And yeah. it just disperses into the universe somehow. And you're a part of this thing that is you can't comprehend now. But once you're there, you'll totally get it. Uh-huh. Uh, it's hard to. It's very hard to believe. But it'd know? be great if that were the. And I don't. And well, I, of listen, course, it would be great. It would, I don't fault anyone. But here's my for answer that. for the. What's for the answer the, for the chimneys? Um, here's what I believe: if there is a God, and if He is good, and if He created uh, the universe and the earth, then an all good being. What can he create? He can't create good because that would just be expansion. Mm-hmm. So all he can create is bad. <laughs> so he creates bad, and then in a cool twist, the bad that he creates is allowed itself in a godlike way to create good mm-hmm. from the bad because originally he created God created good from the bad, then bad from the good, and then um, he gives man the, uh, the exact opportunity. So uh, just from a standpoint of logic, which, you know, is what atheists always uh, try to say, um, I believe that there is an answer for, for the question of why God allows horrors. And that's what I come up with, but um, but I also, you know I have a I have a uh, a rabbi who I talk to a lot. I'm not Jewish. No, McDonald's. No, I was for a year, but um, he's the guy that knows. You know, he's a scholar. You know, like my my pastor doesn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> like he's just just a you know pleasant guy. <laughs> And he has, oh, I don't know. Uh, you should probably look that up. He has hey, a, what is there? I mean, you know. I know. If you ask him a direct question, you go, huh, what? Didn't you hear my sermon? And the sermon's always like, you know, how to be a nice fella, you know, or something. You know, it's always <laughs> nonsense. But this pastor, I phone this pastor, because I, I, I try to read the scriptures and study them. Last week I asked this, this priest, uh, I'm sorry, this uh, rabbi, I was saying, like in the Old Testament, they have the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, he says, uh, lead us not into temptation, uh, but uh, deliver us from evil. And I asked, I said, how could God lead us into temptation? It's without his, uh, 
boundaries, you know, without his fence. God can't do that if I'm correct about about the God of the Old Testament. He cannot. It's not in his nature. You know, the devil can, but not God. So uh, the devil's hard to believe in. <laughs> <laughs> I this of all the religions, you get it's hard to say one's worse than the other. You know, but I can say with all uh, belief that there's one religion that's just not true, and that's the Church of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> I think it even purports to be not true. Like, it's like, you know, there's a guy that's bigger than me. Well, I think some of them, <laughs> I think also, I think some of the people who are, and I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but just some of the stuff that I've seen online, I think I think some people adopt it as kind of a counter, like, okay, uh-huh. well, you guys have that guy over there with the beard, and then we have this guy, yeah. and everyone, every, and we're, we should all be accepting, it's not just that one, or just like, you know, oh, I think, right. sometimes I think I think it's But do you really want to have a personal relationship with the devil? <laughs> 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 a guy, you know, it's the only religion where there's a, a bigger, stronger guy <laughs> outside, you know, of the uh, that they that the Satanists say exists. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they say we're going to go with the with the underdog. guy who was well, because that guy like, you know. That guy wasn't popular. He got cast out. So yeah. like, we're going to be with this guy over here. Cause maybe that's it. Maybe he's an outlaw. Yeah, he's kind of an outlaw. outlaw. Yeah, he's, exactly. He's definitely the original outlaw. <laughs> Look, I don't want to say the, too many good things about the devil. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess he was. Now that you say it, anyway, he was the original I really outlaw. thought about it before, but I guess now, yeah, he was the original guy who got kicked out of the party. You know, like, who hasn't, who doesn't relate to that? <laughs> exactly. You know? It's like, yeah, big Popular guys having a party, just naked people running around, you know, there's snakes and apples, there's a beautiful garden. It's like, yeah, they get kicked out, you know? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone knows what that feels like. It's funny, like, you know, people think that whatever religion you are, Christian or whatever, that you're so self-righteous, but actually, you know, they feel they're sinners, you know, when I was a Christian, I would sin all the time, and, uh, like I ate apples. That's on, that's on page one of the book. Worst possible thing you could do. And uh, so, but anyways, I'm uh, uh, right now. I'm uh, I'm of no faith. You know. I have, but you're looking for answers. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I'll find something. You know. Um, I'm probably close closer to Judaism right now than anything else. But um, but I like to laughter is so important to me. You know. I'm talking about me laughing, sure. not hearing other people laugh. Right. Uh, but uh, but me laughing because I'm so emotional uh, and so sensitive that um, I can be broken, you know, and I know I can, you know, and um, and so laughter is what what uh, keeps me. It really keeps me going, you know, and I'm lucky to have to be able to. You know, there's people in comedy I've met that don't laugh. Oh, right, yeah. And I don't know if it's a power move or not, but, you know, they'll look through your sketch. Yeah, this is weird. Oh, that's funny. Well, you didn't laugh. Yeah, well, yeah, that's funny. it be funny if, it's, if that's you're not, not laughing? Like, you know, rule and one. It, it might be insecure. I don't know what it is. I mean, I know people that aren't funny become professional comedians. Sure. I know that. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, they go to, to Harvard University, you know what I mean, with the <laughs> right. express purpose 
And I met the old Harvard guys, you know what I mean? Because right. Jim Downey, for instance, is still at, so I was still at Saturday Night Live when I was there. And uh, he took some arcane <laughs> thing that I never heard of, you know, uh, subject. And him and Sean Kelly and O'Donnell, you were all the same. And then on their spare time, they're super geniuses, and they go and write a hilarious thing for the Lampoon. Sure. Uh, and then they got into comedy. But now guys expressly go to Harvard to take any subject just so they can be at the Lampoon all the time. And then go Writing, right for The Simpsons. <laughs> yes, so they get into that pipeline. Yeah. Of, uh, and they're not funny. You know, they're just... Uh, I was so... Um, I don't know if you ran into Harvard people when you first got here to Los Angeles, uh, but writers, a great deal of writers are Harvard people. Sure. And that scared me so <laughs> much because I, I never graduated high school. And Harvard, you know what I mean? So I, what I expected were guys with pipes and dogs at their feet and, you know, just the smartest people ever, and they weren't. <laughs> and then I, I, I found out they were just rich. They had, they had money. Like right. their parents had money. It's it's pretty unfair, you know. What's funny to you? Uh, you mean who's funny? Yeah, we're like what funny? what what type of stuff is funny? Oh, to you? tons of stuff. I'm glad to hear tons that. Tons of stuff. Yeah. Oh no, I I love laughing. So I watch Brian Regan. You know, he's probably oh, he's fucking amazing. My favorite, like super for super laughing. You know, like I love Louis C.K. Uh, and uh, but I don't know where I place him because uh, Brian makes me laugh way harder. You know. And uh, and also, you know, completely clean. It's like right. magical, you know. I don't know how he does I really don't know how he does it. And um, I love, like, uh, I watch, uh, I try to get my kid to watch, to try to get somebody to watch a silent movie nowadays. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> on the, you go, no, you've got to look at the screen the entire oh, yeah, yeah, time. Yeah, I'm looking. No, you're definitely yeah. not looking. <laughs> yeah. No, I have people go, I go to the bathroom, just keep it playing. <laughs> like in movies, I go, keep it playing. Like, you know, no, but that fucking drives me crazy because oh, when those no, people come back, it goes, okay, keep it playing. And then you keep it playing. They come out and they go, what happened? Like, yeah, well, I would have paused yeah, it. You moron. You said. Keep it playing. Like they, <laughs> they can figure it out when they get well, back. Well, that's also kind themselves. of a little bit of a power move to say, like, your thing's cute, but I get it. Uh, probably, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever you – that's the thing, like I have a kid. Whenever you push something, it never works. Of course. You know what I mean? You say something's real funny. And, uh, of course, it, it doesn't work. But there's so many great uh, uh, comedies. And, uh, uh, you know, um, with Netflix, you know, they had Fargo. And, uh, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of things that make me laugh the most in popular culture are not called comedies. Because I think once you call a movie comedy, you're, you're kind of pegged in. You're sure. kind of in trouble. Because sure. then that's that, oh, laugh, you know, two laughs a page or whatever it is. Whereas if you just call it, like I met Tarantino and I said, I think your movies are comedies personally. I'm never emotionally uh, drawn in at all. Like I would never cry at one of your movies. <laughs> They're to me giant cartoons. And he agreed. I don't know if he actually agreed in his head, but you see, he agreed <laughs> with his words. Uh, because I said, you know, you're lucky like as in a comedy, it has to be so fast paced, joke, 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 joke. But you get to, you know, get Christopher Walken talking for, you know, five minutes about putting a pocket watch up his ass, you know, and and, and setting up this great joke, you know, uh, where people aren't expecting it, you know, because it's supposed to be a right a Tarantino uh, a movie. So, um, but he obviously has uh, has comic uh, aspirations. 
It was very funny when he hosted Saturday Night Live because you act different around directors <laughs> because they can give you, give you work. Of course. <laughs> so everybody's trying to look interesting, you know. Like I was, oh, I I was like, brooding in the corner. Do a lot of extra character yeah. work. I was sitting beside, uh, I did the same thing. I was sitting beside Annie Leibovitz, the photographer. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, right beside her in an airplane. So she hardly ever look at me, but I would try to look like super, like, <laughs> tortured. I want to photograph that guy. He, <laughs> says, ah, like he has a story to tell. What's going on behind that? <laughs> like Expression. she doesn't just do it for the money. He just brushed his hair back for it. It's not even windy in here. I don't even know what he's doing, but I just need to take a picture. Like she's just going to hold, hold that yeah. and just start snapping <laughs> pictures on the, on the But you, you, uh, it's funny how you act towards people when they... You know, like, uh, we probably both had this, and you've had uh, enormous success. So now you're in a different class when it comes to money. And I, I, find, I find in my personal life, money separates people. And uh, it's just weird to go to a guy's giant mansion, and you don't have a giant mansion, you know? So you can't really invite him to your place, you know? And uh, so mostly you just got to walk around and go, whoa, what's that? You know, <laughs> How much that picture cost? You know, you're like this <laughs> rube, and uh, and then he has other rich people. Now he's got rich friends, also. You know, he's got you, and then he's got super rich friends. Uh, and so, I don't know. I don't know if it's a class thing, but you know, like I, I, my father would always go, "You know, why why don't the black guys, you know, get pull their bootstraps out and get out of the ghetto?" You know, but they're comfortable in the, I don't know if they're still ghettos, but th- right. th- this is where they live and this is where, you know, uh, their their uh, family is and their friends. And they're going to leave, you know, to try to make it with... Like one time I went to England and there was a comedian that came to Canada and uh, he said, if you come to England, you know, come and visit me. So I went to England because I, I did, they did, had a comedy show back then. And... Uh, I said, I'll visit this guy. I go to his house. It's a castle. <laughs> like, he forgot to tell me. <laughs> He's so super rich. So it was one of those goddamn long tables like you see in the movies. Mm-hmm. And the, the butlers and shit. And, uh, and the soup. And then you're like, you feel so uncomfortable. You're like, just let me get home. You're you know? a comedian? Yeah. You do this? Oh, and they're talking like, oh, like from the movies, you know. And uh, you can hardly make them out that I'm talking about the parents, you know. And I was never more uncomfortable. But then a super funny thing happened. Um, they had a, a, a dog. Uh, uh, they had two little poodles. You know? mm-hmm. And then they were running, rawr, big fight, you know. A down scampy, whatever the hell their name was, you know. A down Louis the Fourteenth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we look over and we're all, you know, they're all fancy. I don't have any good clothes, but they're all super fancy. And the butler's there and everything. And then uh, one of the dogs is eating the other dog's shit. <laughs> Gut bacteria. Yeah, exactly. He's just trying to get a, create more digestion. Because they don't know they're rich, the dogs. <laughs> the dogs have no idea how much money they're worth, you know? <laughs> but but uh, I, was I bet very... their dog shit was a better meal than most Americans have. <laughs> yes, every night. Probably More true. protein. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> but it, but so class is very hard to to just jump into the next rung and try to you know they talk different, they act different. You know it's really hard to uh, you know even money won't do it sometimes. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can't just get if you win a lottery ticket, 
you can't hang out in New York with moneyed people right. in the Hamptons. They're not going right. to accept you. So, uh, you know, class, uh, there's still class and, and uh, you know, um, it's it's very hard to uh, it's very hard to not want to be with your buddies and your family. Yeah, I mean, I just I think it's all just a it. I think shiny things are fun. Yeah, but you know, but I've had. Ma- <laughs> well, you laugh. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've yeah. had many you periods. Enjoy yourself. I love yes, and I love comedy the same as you know, yeah. like I, I like just like what you're saying. I feel exactly the same. I'm a big yeah. laugher. I liked it. Yeah. I don't know why you would watch comedy if you weren't going to appreciate it. Yeah, I don't either. You right, know, right, so right. I, you know, I don't know. Well, you have like the perfect job to to get to, uh, um, you know, laugh at this. Uh, I love watching, and I and I love watching my friends be exactly who i know they are which you're you know it's like watching your friends do i guess that's part of the supportive thing you were talking about it's like uh, yeah you know we're all doing the same stuff and right. to watch someone kill the way that they can kill and to see people or to watch to them do that, it's great that's funny too. you know it's really it's to really watch great them do really badly I, I when i was i can't do it anymore because people recognize me but when i was starting out my favorite thing was to go to uh, amateur night or open mic <laughs> because you know 75 percent of them are mentally ill <laughs> you know <laughs> and so then, you know they're out on the street ranting, and they go, "Oh, I can go inside," you know. <laughs> and uh, so uh, you know they're just unintentionally very fun. I don't know if it's cruelty, but God damn, it makes me laugh. I just laugh are you performing so anywhere hard. anytime soon? Um, are you like getting up regularly? Oh no, yeah, I'm stopping a little bit, you know, because I went crazy. I couldn't say no, you know. Right. And uh, two years ago, I did 46 weeks. Jesus Christ. That's yeah, too much. That's too much. I did one time, like, uh, um, so so many weeks in a row. When I was starting out, when I first came to America, I said, I'll just do every week, you know, get to be the strongest comedian ever. And I started to get nervous and, and, and anxious, and maybe I was losing my mind a little bit, you know. And I read a story about a guy named uh, Dick Sean. Oh yeah, you yeah, know yeah. That story yeah. About I him? don't know the story, but I know that I know the guy. Yeah, he was in um, the producers. Mm-hmm. He played the guy who wrote the the Springtime for Hitler. So, uh, anyways, I read a, an article that said, you know, here he was this fantastic improvisational performer. Apparently, so he went on stage and he destroyed, you know. For the first half, then there was an intermission. But right before the intermission, he had a real heart attack. But people in the audience thought it was not a real. Right. So he fell down, and they had a laughing, you know. Can you imagine, like, the worst thing they could... And they're like, he's like, no, no. And the, imagine just hearing laughter. And, <laughs> you know, so it got in my head, this story, because I was kind of losing my mind. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of something happening to me. I don't know why. But uh, so I, I, then I thought, that's going to happen to me. You know? You're going to have the heart attack. Yeah, because I got very nervous before I went on stage. So I thought, well, you know, nerves can lead to stress, which can lead to a heart attack. That's not sure. unreasonable. So uh, I go on stage. I go on stage and I tell the audience, I go, listen, you know, there was this guy, Dick Sean, and he had a, pretended to have a heart attack and everybody ignored him and laughed. If that happens tonight with me, it will be an actual heart attack. <laughs> so after I say that, everyone laughs. 
And I'm like, oh, fuck, in my head. I'm like, now I've done an even worse thing. Now they really think it's a joke. Yeah, now if I had a heart attack. So then I go, no, no, folks, no, no. I go, I know now. It looks like I'm... (laughs) If I have a heart attack later, that this is a joke that I set up now. I go, no, no. Uh, It's definitely... I can't strongly enough emphasize that it will be a real heart attack. Now people are going, okay, we understand, but what the fuck? (laughs) It's the unfunniest thing we've ever heard. And uh, so I never recover. (laughs) And... uh, and then I remember at the end of the show, a guy came up to me and goes, I, you know, I liked the, f- I didn't like much of it, but I liked the first part. But you, at the end, you should have pretended to have a heart attack. And I was like, no. <laughs> no, it's the opposite no. of what I would say. So then I, I quit. I got off the road and I said, I need like a couple of months off because, uh, you know, you start forgetting where you are. Or what day it is. Yeah, who what it's are, like to be a human. I, w- I want to, when you start performing again, will you please let me know so I can oh, come see you? Well, I, I would love to come see I would love to come see it. Well, maybe we'll all do a show or something. That'd be really fun. That'd be you really know, fun. You know, it's good to go to that comedy magic club where everyone likes you, no matter what you say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the comedy store's been fun. The comedy store's been really fun. Which room? The main room. Oh, what's that one? It's the big room. Oh, they yeah, just, that room's like, great. They just, no, that room's awesome. It's, it's going but through the original this renaissance. Room is tough. It can be tough. Yeah, yeah it can yeah. be tough. Like if it's, you know, if you go have a late spot in the middle of the week, yeah. it can be I think my friend Adam Egget, who was a manager, yeah. is responsible, strong, because I've seen him. Like, you know, I'll be with Spade, and he'll go, like, if you ever want to do sets, you I'm know, telling anytime, you, man, they have I'll take really care of really done an incredible job there. It, it is such a great, there's so much energy there. Yeah. And it's so lively. Yeah. And it's really great. It's Adam Egget. Adam's done great, and then yeah. the, and then the improv also has like stepped up their game to, too. It's actually a really good time for comedy in LA. It is a good time, and you know, I was there for the first comedy boom, you know, yeah. But that one sucked because uh, you know the, they would just put comedy everywhere, right? And comedy doesn't work everywhere. And now it's they put you know the guys do their own shows, people you know the kids do their own shows, yeah. In the back of a pizzeria or something, yep. And it, it's a great uh, crowd, and you know stuff like that. But um, but back in the oh my god, in that first comedy boom, I remember there was one time. It was in Ottawa. It was me and another comedy, a comedy named Jeremy Hotz. We were the oh only, yeah yeah. I know oh, do you know Jeremy? Hotz? Yeah. So we were the only two uh, Ottawa comics. <laughs> so uh, um, the manager goes, "We got you." A New Year's gig. It was just huge, a New Year's gig, you know, because we were making $15 a spot. And the New Year's gig was paying $50 for each of $50 for me and $50 for Jeremy. So we were very excited, you know. So they said, go to the Chateau uh, Laurier, which was the biggest hotel in Ottawa, to the McKinnon room, you know. And uh, so we're like, okay. So we go, we're real nervous, you know, we show up and it's suits and everything. And we say to the lady, like, yes, can you tell us where the McKinnon room is? There's no McKinnon room, you know? So anyways, it turns out to be a room in the hotel (laughs) that a guy named McKinnon... (laughs) You know, so it's like, so we go to this, they give us the key. Oh, yes, Mr. McKinnon gave you this key to go. So we go up to the room, it's in 402, so we open the door, it's empty. It's got, like, platters of food and stuff. And so then a guy comes in, you know, we're really like nervous. And uh, the guy goes, hi, Bill McKinnon, you know, and he goes, he goes, I'm doing a thing for New Year's for my friends, magical mystery tour. And I take them to all these sites, you know, and we're going to go to the canal and skate on the canal. We're going to go get some uh, 
taffy at the taffy shop. And then we're going to come here third, and uh, you're going to be the comedian. So we're like, oh, God, oh, yes, of course, yeah, that's good. And uh, so they go, so they're going to come in and eat. You know, uh, We have food for them and to drink, and then you'll come out. And then, so we go, well, where will we come out? You have to hide. You know, oh so God. Jeremy, he he was the MC. He hid behind a curtain, mm-hmm. like in a Spectre Clouseau movie. Yes, he hid behind a curtain. I hid in the bathroom with the light off. So, anyways, now you hear people come in. You're like, oh Christ! It's pitch black in this bathroom, and people are drinking and eating, and then people are trying to get in the bathroom. You know, what the hell? You know, they can't get in the bathroom. And I'm like, I'm like all afraid in the dark. And so finally I hear like Jeremy, you know, just jump out and I hear his act. And he hasn't changed his act at all, you know, for the circumstances because we were not savvy enough to do such a thing. And, uh, and so he he does his, his real act and then he introduces me. And I come out of the bathroom, and there's six guys all angry because they're waiting for the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I go out to do my act, and uh, and everyone has a like a penis noses. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, like so I'm like in the middle of them, <laughs> like a, like clockwork orange. Or and then a woman like hits me. I do my first joke. She hits me with a penis nose. <laughs> I'm like, oh god. Damn. <laughs> So but this is the worst. This is the one I should have told you. I went to uh, <laughs> I went to a ski chalet. This was a corporate gig, and so I, you know, I, I show up at the ski chalet. And it was a thing. It was a pesticide company, and they had sent me like for weeks all these pamphlets on pesticides, as if I was going to you know read them all and create an act from this. You know, so. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I go, I show up at the at the ski chalet, and I'm all nervous. I meet the guy, and he's like, he's like, here's the plan. I got a great plan. And like an idiot, I always used to go, yes, you know, instead of no. He says, there's a guy in, in New York for you know, this company. It's uh, called Aerial, you know, Aerial Pesticides. But there's a wonder kid in New York that just started. You know, he's in advertising. And he's a whiz kid. We're lucky to have him, you know. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just agreeing with everything. He's like, but the thing is, nobody's seen him yet. He lives in New York. You know, we're all here in Quebec. So he's like, I thought it'd be a hilarious idea to have you pretend to be him. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, that would be great. Like, I'm a complete idiot, you know. I said, I agree. keep agreeing with him. And uh, so he's like, you want something to eat? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Just come on, you know. So he takes me, and then he takes me in. There's like all the people. Like he takes me into the the room, and I'm not prepared. And then we sit at the, this main table, and he goes, "This is uh, this is Bill, uh, you know, Henderson from uh, New York. You all know him." Everybody's like, "Oh yeah, Bill. I heard a lot about you." I go, "But none of it was too bad." You know? <laughs> and I just try to avoid any specific questions they had. You know, anything that you got to go. Well, uh, anyway, it's good chicken, and. Uh, so uh, uh, <laughs> the guy goes up and he goes, listen, folks, you you all have heard of Bill Henderson, you know, and we're all excited. Well, what a treat we have. We got him here, you know. Uh, it's the first uh, aerial franchise, uh, aerial pesticide franchise, uh, to meet this uh, <laughs> Bill Henderson. <laughs> so here he is, everybody, Bill Henderson. So I go up, and I now I have no, like... Uh, 
I don't know how to change my act. I'm too too green, you know. So I just launch into my act. And I don't know what I was talking about. And, uh, you know, the joke about murder she wrote or something. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I think it was diagnosis murder. It was diagnosis murder. I remember it. It was my first joke. and So everybody's kind of puzzled, you know. No one's really laughing. And so I, I talk for about five minutes, and then I hear a guy go, he's like, enough with the jokes. <laughs> I'm like, huh? And I'm all afraid. And then the idiot that thought up the idea, he runs on. He puts his arm around me. He goes, we've been having a little fun with you. <laughs> it was no fun at all for me. He goes, we've been having a little fun with you. He goes, this isn't Bill Henderson at all. It's Norm MacDonald, which means nothing. <laughs> it's just a different name than Bill Henderson. He goes, it's Norm MacDonald. He's a comedian. Oh, you know, after no. them not laughing at me for five minutes. Uh, okay, here he goes. And he runs away again. <laughs> that sucks. Oh, it was the worst. And so then they were openly hostile after that, like I tried to trick them. you know. And I remember going, I mean, you know, this is so strange to say in a stand-up set, but I'm like, it was his idea. You know, <laughs> it had devolved so badly that people yelling at me. I'm like, what about him? You know, he had, he shares some responsibility for this, and, uh, and then I had to stay in the night because my contract <laughs> for me. You know, when guys like they don't know, it's better to maybe send you to your hotel room, and for, you know. But in the contract, it said I had to. You had to stay had there. To stay. So that guy's like, "Well, you got to stay." You know, even though it's an. It awful sounds idea like a kids point. in the hall sketch. It sounds like <laughs> exactly. Right, yeah. that. We're gonna put this one over on A and Oh, now you got to stay. Boy, I you know I started out kids in the hall. I'll never forget it because I I worked with Bruce McCullough who he was a stand up and he was in the sketch show. Oh, but Bruce. I knew all of them, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, boy, I I loved the way they did women. You know, the way they did women oh, right. were so spot on and funny. But uh, but I liked all of them. I was good friends with all of them. And, uh, and I never forget, they, I, was, I was so envious. You know, they went to New York, and then all of a sudden, they're on the cover of uh, um, Rolling Stone, The Future of Comedy. And that was back when magazines used to do like 25-page, you know, right. stories. And I was like, wow, like The Future of Comedy. And... Uh, yeah, you know, I've talked to them and they've said like the uh, Bruce thinks the worst idea they ever had was calling themselves the kids in the hall because then they aged, you right? Know, and uh, they had this name. But <laughs> so, did you like the kids? In the hall? Loved. That's what you grew up on. Lo- that, well, know? I grew up. I mean, I watched every comedy, everything. But the kids in the hall was definitely. I liked a lot of. I liked a lot of British and Canadian comedy because uh, uh, tonally it was just a little bit different. I mean, there was good American stuff. I uh, like American stand up, uh-huh. but I liked a lot of the British and I liked uh, Canadian SCTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think like America is uh, is great for stand up. Is by far the best in stand up. Yeah, you know, you go to that Montreal Comedy Festival. And it's people from all over the world, and right. only the Canadians are, are, I mean, only the Americans are funny. But, but, uh, British and, and, uh, uh, uh British and Canadians, uh, with sketch are, are much better. Spectacular. Yeah, yeah. And like Kids in the Hall was right up there with Monty Python for me, you know. Will you please let me know when you're doing something? Yes, yes. Maybe you'll do it too, though. I would. We'll get Bob Saget. I would do, I would absolutely. But now I'm self conscious because because some of my my material lately was a little confessional, but it, but uh, but wait 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 
Well, it might not be confessional in the way that I don't like. It might be. Okay. <laughs> just after every, funny, joke, I'll, after every joke, I'll just go, eh, no, I'm... Like, I'll just be really yeah. nervous. Well, you know what? It's not fair, because I only saw one guy. I know, he was I bad. Know, I know. And Rich Schreiner told me there was a thing called confessional comedy, which I didn't know it's what it meant. It's very true. It's very it true. Yeah. It's very true. And uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I just saw one guy. So it's really unfair of me to have any decision. But people should pick up your book. I'm just an old man. Based on a true story, a memoir, Norm MacDonald, forward by Louis... Oh, Louis was so nice. Uh, Louis. Because <laughs> I, you know, they asked me, can you get guys, your friends? And, you know, it's the worst when they ask you that. <laughs> you ask your friends, and you're like, I'm like, no, please, I don't want to do that. Will don't you write a thing? What do I write? I don't know. Yeah. Like, don't you guys know anyone? Like, I love, I love, I love. God, they didn't know anyone. They're like, do you have his phone? I go, I don't, what? Can't you find anyone's phone number? There's sort of an understanding of, of the apology request, which is two paragraphs of, I know this is dumb. I'm so sorry. Yes. I'm sorry for asking you to do this. I don't blame you if you never want to speak to me again. Exactly. Would you please write this again? And again, I know how shitty. I know, you know yeah. We're just, we don't want to. Uh, no, I was so, he was so fantastically sweet, like, because he knew that he, he knew exactly what you were saying. He knew that. Took that, all the pressure that, off. That's what I was saying, yeah. Yeah. And he said, no, no. He said, I'll, uh, he was nice. He said, I, I'll, I'll write it and I won't have to lie. So he was very, very nice. That's great. And he t- reminded me of it because he talked about when he first met me, which I had forgotten, but then I remembered. And a very funny thing happened that night. Do we have one more moment? Sure, one more moment. Absolutely. Um, I'm sorry I, I, I keep talking. I don't mind. Listen, I, I absolutely – It's first of all, it was – a shock to me that you remembered who that we had met before. Oh, sure, of course I remember. And that you I don't know, I just I didn't know what to expect. We you know, we have never really talked at length. No, no, no. And but... so I don't know if you're like, ah, I gotta do this podcast thing just to yeah, oh, no, no, no. I remember... it was really pleasurable talking <laughs> to you. No, I remember Meeting you, I remember it well. Yeah. Shoes, shoes. <laughs> Enjoy your burrito, everyone, it, baby. Great way to end it. All right, you're okay, baby. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you, like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.